Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're delighted to speak to Brother Mubin Vaid. Assalamu alaikum Mubin. How's it going? Alaikum salam. Alhamdulillah. Doing well. Alhamdulillah. Mubin Vaid is a Muslim public intellectual and writer who focuses on how traditional Islamic frames of thinking intersect the modern world. He has authored a number of pieces on Islamic sexual and gender norms. Today, Mubin is going to be speaking to us about Islam's position concerning transgenderism. Inshallah, today's presentation will be of great benefit to Muslims wanting to contribute to the public discourse pertaining to these issues. Mubin, whenever you're ready, the floor is all yours. Inshallah, what I'll do today is walk through really summarizing and synthesizing the core content in two pieces that I've published both on Muslim matters. And they both begin with the title, The Male is Not Like the Female. Um, I'll describe those papers in a little bit of detail as I walk through them here in the presentation. But I thought it would be good to start up front. And with- I just want to point out to the listeners. I just want to point out to the listeners that both uh, that both of those articles are linked to in the description box below. Yeah, and before I got into the topic itself, I thought it would be worth exploring why the topic is even why is it important. What, what's the what's all the fuss about when we start thinking about gender? And uh, I think there are a couple of reasons why the topic of transgenderism becomes important for us, especially as Muslims. Um, Transgenderism historically has been less tolerated socially and certainly religiously. I think most religious communities haven't really had to deal with it a a whole lot. It's always been a rare phenomenon. Um, In certain Muslim countries, actually seeing people who are gender nonconforming was far more common. In the West, however, it has been historically quite rare Um, You've had some aberrant social practices in certain corners, but for the most part, it was something that was out of the public eye and certainly not something that's been socially endorsed. Nevertheless, it is something that, especially in the last few years, has been advancing rapidly when it comes to social acceptance, cultural endorsement, um, political and legal support, um, in a sense, far more rapidly than homosexuality. One can look at homosexual activism starting in the 60s, 70s, 80s, sort of moving along, and just how long it took for homosexuality to become publicly and socially accepted, um, really a function of decades of ongoing activism. Uh, Transgenderism really in just the past eight years or so has taken off in ways that I think most people could not have anticipated. One of the key social movements really happened in the in the year 2015, where you had uh, Bruce Jenner, right, the the famous member of the Kardashian, Kardashian clan, came out as transgender. He subsequently identified as Caitlyn. He went through a number of medical procedures, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, shortly thereafter was designated by Glamour magazine as Woman of the Year. 
received a lot of public um, public uh, you know just visibility and popularity. Uh, you know the, the attention surrounding his transition was huge. Uh, he had an interview uh, in 2020 uh, with Diane Sawyer. It was watched by over 17 million people. It making it the most watched 2020 episode or program in over 15 years. And so when you talk about just the level of attention and interest that that particular event attracted, um, it was quite significant. Uh, By late 2015, early 2016, so just months after the Jenner transition, you have the emergence of bathroom bills that begin to appear. And so you, you take something that is an extremely rare phenomenon that really exists on the margins. And suddenly you have someone that is a cultural icon and really not, not a major celebrity by any stretch of the imagination, but nevertheless, somebody who people followed a household name um, for many people, certainly not me, but for many people, you know, somebody that people knew. And now you have something that develops a sort of current, right? It develops social cachet. It starts getting momentum. Now, law, policy, culture are trying to respond to this. And some conservative political actors in states begin to pass bathroom bills. And bathroom bills, um, what they essentially do is designate bathrooms as being locations where sex matters. Right? And so the bathroom that you are supposed to use is the one that coincides with your actual biological sex, not your gender presentation. Uh, North Carolina is one of the first states that passes a bathroom bill mandating bathroom use according to sex. Uh, This bill is rejected roundly. Uh, It receives a ton of negative press. Celebrities, politicians, and others come out against it. Uh, The NBA had scheduled All-Star Weekend that year in North Carolina. They relocated the All-Star Game to New Orleans because they said that North Carolina was transphobic, the NBA is a LGBT ally, as a corporation and um, institution, and so all of their all-star festivities, all of the revenue that comes into the state as a function of All-Star Weekend suddenly goes to Louisiana. In addition to that, you have a major public letter that gets signed by leading corporations that have headquarters or large fields of employment in North Carolina. Um, a number of them threatening explicitly to move their offices and work outside of the state. And so, you know, they, they all signed this declaration affirming trans rights. And this is the first of many that would undergo this. Um, I believe North Dakota or South Dakota, one of the two also had a similar experience where some of the leading employers said that if you're going to go down this road, we're no longer going to operate in your state. And, you know, politicians, even conservative religious politicians come out and say that we really don't have much of a choice because we can't stand up on this issue at the expense of millions of jobs, right, for our constituents. Within a year of the bill being signed, it's repealed. It's repealed. So you're talking about something that really 2015, 2016 becomes an inflection point. Everything's moving very, very fast. In addition to this, as a social and cultural movement, it has significant implications insofar as it begins to transform language. And language is a huge point of emphasis when you start thinking about the trans movement. Initially, when we saw organizations and even online technology corporations adjust or accommodate transgender activism, it was met with cynicism, even mockery and jeers. 
Now, many of those things are standard convention, especially in corporate sites. If you might remember years ago, I think, I think Facebook was one of the pioneers of embracing this sort of 73 gender. I think they had over 70 genders that a user could select on their public profile and people used to crack jokes about that. Now, if you go on sites like LinkedIn, it's very common for people to identify their pronouns. In fact, it's, it's, it's fully expected now that people will have next to their names, their pronoun identification. And so you're, you've, you're, you're already seeing things that previously were looked at as quite strange or rare, um, which have become conventional and standard for people who are looked at as respectable, honorable, and dignified. Uh, language guides get updated in publications, the Associated Press, they designate the term biological sex as transphobic as part of its style book for writing, for journalists and for their own publications. Um, and likewise, we see this with a number of other journalistic outlets, the New York Times, Washington Post, and others suddenly start updating their conventions for how what acceptable writing constitutes and what is unacceptable. Uh, dead naming is something that becomes uh, verboten. It is looked at as a form of hate speech. And that is the act of using a person's pre-trans pre name to identify him or her. And so, for instance, just me referring to Jenner as Bruce, if I were simply to mention Bruce Jenner, um, even in the context of tracing the history, people would say that I'm actually guilty, guilty of dead naming. And uh, that becomes something that is looked at as, uh, as a form of hate, right? It's, it's bigotry. It's, it's an attack on the individual's sense of self. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine, so very old, storied, certainly the most credible journalistic outlet when it comes to medical, um, medical scholarship and research. They published a piece a few years ago calling for the removal of uh, the designation of sex on birth certificates. And so now, now we're talking about you know, very, very serious corners of society that are suddenly endorsing changes to the really deep structural and systemic changes to the way in which different practices operate in order to adjust to this new climate of gender critical understandings of the world, sort of new gender theories, and of course, transgenderism as a major part of that. Uh, more recently, this just happened in the past few months, the Cambridge Dictionary made updates to the definition of both man and woman. And so both of, those both of those terms have been upended from the way that the dictionary identified and defined them for centuries. So psychology is another discipline where the effects of transgenderism and transgender activism becomes really clear. Um, if, if you look at sort of the developments within the field of psychology, one of the big things that's happened over the past few years is the emergence of what is often referred to as affirmative therapy as a framework for treating quote unquote gender dysphoria. And we'll, we'll talk about gender dysphoria as a term itself as well and why that's a significant term. Nevertheless, affirmative therapy is essentially looked at as orthodoxy within psychology. It is the appropriate, uh, it is looked at as the only appropriate, effective and moral approach to treating people who are struggling with their gender identity. Um, in 2022, so last year, the, uh, the DSM, which is the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic manual, which chronicles um, mental illnesses and provides guidelines around treatment or what the underlying symptoms are. Uh, it made updates to the sections on gender and specifically gender dysphoria. Um, so even 
you know, and this was already updated. So we're talking about something that has gone through multiple revisions over the past few years. In 2022, it was revised further. And so desired gender was changed to experienced gender. So we're no longer talking about the gender that people desire. It's the gender that they're now experiencing. It's who they are. Cross-sex medical procedure was updated to gender-affirming medical procedure. And you'll see that as well. Uh, what was once called sex change surgery became sex reassignment surgery is now becoming gender confirmation surgery or gender affirming surgery. Um, these are the, this is the type of uh, language and categories and concepts that are being adjusted and updated. Uh, Cross-sex hormone treatment was amended to gender affirming hormone treatment. So when you start talking about hormone therapy, now you're talking. Now you have to describe it as something that's gender affirming. Natal male and natal female were changed to individual assigned male or female at birth. So now we're endorsing fully um, the latest sort of conceptions within gender theory, especially trans activism, as part of it. Uh, also. Another update that was made was the term differences in sexual development, which has been there for some time, was noted, uh, or rather disorders of sexual development, which is a medical category, uh, has now been updated to differences in sexual development. So we're not looking at this as a disorder. We're not looking at this as something that has otherwise gone wrong or needs to be corrected, but rather we're just looking at it as a form of difference to be accommodated and supported and affirmed. Uh, other places as well, literature and film, huge uptick in trans representation in literature. Historically, you had almost no trans characters in books or in media. Now popular books have trans or gender critical messaging, um, which are featured, especially during Pride Month, but even outside of Pride Month. Um, popular works, one of them, especially that targets children, is, is entitled Red, a Crayon Story. And that is a book that tells the story of a blue crayon mistakenly labeled red. And then this crayon suffers an identity crisis, has to deal with different forms of alienation. And suddenly, you know, once he's able to, once this crayon is able to adjust that label to be regarded as blue, you know, it, it just sort of matches everything fits together and his life you know, his happiness, his sense of self-worth, right? Everything's coming together. And so these types of stories are being written now, targeting children, and that's one. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, uh, Disney, as a corporation among others, has been at the forefront of this and regularly releases movies and shows that feature trans or gender ambiguous characters. Gender ambiguous characters are really what we're seeing more than explicitly trans characters. And the idea there is that you have a character that is not clearly defined or distinguished by gender. You don't know if this character is a male or a female. The voice is something that is sufficiently ambiguous to support both the hairstyle, the clothing, all the way down, right? Someone who just appears to be very ambiguous and is gender non-conforming in an explicit way, but for children is still a cute character, a nice 
you know, a sense of humor, a personality that is amiable. That's that seems to be the approach that that many um, you know many media outlets are taking to the introduction of transgenderism to children. Uh, some of the popular shows that Disney supports, uh, The Owl House and The Proud Family, both of them have these sort of non-conforming or openly homosexual characters. In addition to that, Disney has put out a public commitment to greater representation moving forward, especially in its Pixar film line. And so we're starting to see this more and more uh, with LGBT characters. The latest iteration of the Toy Story series, which was focused on Buzz Lightyear, had a, I believe, a lesbian character of some sort. And so, again, you're, you're seeing that more and more now. So uh, the, that's just sort of a small, small sample of reasons why this has become a really relevant and important issue. Media and culture, you're looking at society, you're looking at politics, psychology, all the way down. We're seeing a society that is adjusting in really substantial ways to the reality of transgenderism at levels previously unforeseen. And we're all being exposed to this, especially our children, right? And so as a community, we really have to understand what's going on. We have to have a discourse that is engaged with it. And we have to be able to represent our own moral and religious commitments in the face of it. And so that's, that's really the motivation for trying to address this topic. I'm not sure if there are any stats that we can appeal to, but uh, if one were to ask you your personal opinion, um, is it, you know, uh, you know, are these ideas widespread simply because they're being enforced or is there really a genuine broad embrace of these, you know, of these notions and of these concepts and, you know, of this completely new understanding of, of, of gender? Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go forward. I think that's a bit of a loaded question. You know, the question is, you know, what, what is being embraced? If you look at, you know, transgenderism itself, it's still relatively rare. But rare itself is a relative term, right? If you look historically, it was uh, predominantly male. It was one in 10,000 men that experienced any form of what they used to refer to as gender identity disorder, GID. Um, most frequently, it was regarded as mild. And so you're talking about men that perhaps felt incongruent when it came to their own gender presentation. They may have felt some depression or anxiety. Uh, you had, you know, sometimes almost this caricature, um, but it was also sort of culturally understood that there were certain men that moonlighted as cross-dressers, right? Just to get that out of their system, perhaps you had, you had a subculture where that existed, Again, small subcultures that existed traditionally, um, but the idea that you had an entire segment of the population that was being structurally impressed on account of their um, sort of the, the incongruence between what they were presenting at and who they really were internally was never there, right? Certainly not to this level. If you look at statistics now, especially among young people who identify as non-straight, and when it comes to gender, as non-binary, the statistics are very high. Um, you have had some studies that have been done on specific counties, so school systems. You know, in Minnesota or Minneapolis and other states, you'll see studies that get done where students get surveyed and they get they identify, you know, as either non-binary or this and that. And the statistics are very high, so much so that when it comes to non-straight, you're looking at a majority that identifies non-straight. When it comes to non-cis 
meaning uh, sort of non-explicitly uh, male or female in a way that corresponds with their biological sex. Again, very high numbers. What was traditionally not even a category in many of these studies and surveys is now something that frequently exceeds 10%. Um, and the numbers keep going up by the year. And so the younger you get, the more you're seeing this. Um, in addition to that, when it comes to gender itself, I would say a lot of the core fundamental arguments for how gender is being reconceived have in fact been assimilated into the mainstream. And I think certainly within the academy and elsewhere is almost unrivaled orthodoxy, depending on who you're talking to. The only places where you see any critical pushback is in very, very you know, conservative quarters. And even there, sometimes the pushback isn't really all that satisfying. And so, you know, what we've seen in society so far as it's adjusted the way it conceives us and looks at gender has been pretty remarkable, especially in the past decade and a half. So inshallah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more as we go forward in the slides. Um, but this particular section here is, is focused on the part one article. And what it does is it sort of sets aside the contemporary discussion and says, let us examine the fiqh tradition for what it is. And how did the sharia address questions of gender nonconformity? Did it ever deal with situations in which people were nonconforming? And if so, how did it negotiate those realities? And uh, I think it's important first and foremost to sort of articulate what the affirmative position in the Sharia is for gender. And within the Sharia itself, biological sex and psychological gender are not distinguished, right? So we don't have a narrative that treats these two things as radically differentiated. In addition to that, you have plenty of verses in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes us, his creation, as bifurcated as male and female. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Layl, and he swears by his creation of the male and the female. Elsewhere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Najam, and this is just a sampling of a few verses. Again, we can find plenty more in the Quran. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, he says, And that he creates the two mates, the male and female. Uh, very famously in Surah Ali Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَيْسَ الذَّكَرُ كَالْأُنثَ And the male is not like the female. And so they're different. Uh, this verse, this last verse from Surah Al-Rum, uh, very famous and commonly recited at weddings. So when you go to weddings, they introduce the wedding event with verses from the Qur'an. You'll, uh, you'll hear this verse oftentimes. And of his signs is that he created for you from yourselves mates, that you may find tranquility in them, and he placed between you affection and mercy. Indeed, in that are signs for people who reflect. And so the... Um, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describing his creation, us as men and women, is ubiquitous throughout the Quran, throughout the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And again, we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail. Um, but normatively, gender and sex line up. Gender and sex line up. Um, on rare occasions, however, there are differences that appear. Cases where gender con conformity is in fact compromised. And these cases of non-conformity can be due to different factors. They can be due to biological compl complications, 
Um, they can be due to dispositional divergences. So biological complications, meaning someone who just physiologically does not self-evidently appear as a male or a female. Um, so you, you have those situations. Dispositional divergences, which we'll talk about. And then the third one being affected, meaning deliberate elective divergences where people are now choosing and taking on personas which present as the opposite sex. And all of them are treated differently vis-a-vis -vis the Sharia. Uh, and we'll, we'll walk through each of these, uh, these um, individually, one by one. And we'll start with biological nonconformity. And this most closely relates to what um, in the classical works of fiqh is oftentimes subsumed within the discussion of the khunta or the khunta mushkil, the ambiguous khunta. Now, the ambiguous khunta comprises two scenarios in works of fiqh. The first scenario is a person who possesses both male and female organs. Uh, this is frequently referred to as hermaphroditism. And so when you refer to hermaphrodites, you're speaking of an individual that has both male and female organs, especially when you're referring to genital organs. Um, the second is a person who possesses neither male or female genitalia and urinates from an opening in the body. These are the two use cases in which the scholars would describe the junta, the junta mushkin. And the reason it's mushkin, the reason that the junta is ambiguous and in fact problematic is that the junta is not self-evidently male or female in a way that's discernible or identifiable, especially from birth. And a lot of the fiqh discussion on junta deals with how we can make a gender determination for that person. And there's a lot of discussion and a lot of scholarly difference on this. Um, most scholars tend to galvanize, most jurists tend to galvanize around this particular, a particular approach that starts with an examination of, you know, which genitals are actually doing the work when a person has to urinate or relieve themselves. Um, later, they would examine physical developments. And so when it's a young child, they'd say, okay, where's... Where's this child urinating from? We'll just consider it that gender. And then we're gonna look at adolescence. So what happens during adolescence? Do they, do they start experiencing menstruation? Do breasts develop? Do they start getting facial hair, right? What, what is occurring that can give us an indication of whether or not this is a male or a female? Um, so Mubi, those, yes. what, what, what would be the most uh, appropriate English term for junta? That's a good question. A lot of times you'll see junta translated as hermaphrodite, although it because it comprises both hermaphrodites and people who are really suffering from what they refer to as agenesis or agenetic individuals, it's, it's a bit limiting. I think just regarding it as hermaphroditism is probably fair because that's the majority phenomenon, even though it's an exceedingly rare phenomenon as it is. Um, you know, within that small sliver, it's probably majority done there. Um, and so that's, that tends to be how it gets translated into English. I didn't translate it deliberately because I, it, it comprises multiple, um, multiple physiological categories and physiological phenomenons. And so the idea here is just to describe them both and say, hey, these are both use cases that fit or are subsumed within this category of junta. 
Now, going forward, uh, you know, again, the, the question is what, what happens, however, when we have situations where the junta remains ambiguous? So, you know, we're, we're trying to evaluate this child and see which genital organ is doing the work or functioning more. Um, now we're looking at adolescence and puberty and pubertal development. And in all of these scenarios, we're not getting enough information. We're not, we're not seeing anything that would clearly signify or indicate one gender or the other. In these situations, the Sharia takes a reserved stance. And this is what the jurists did. Meaning that when it came to the prayer of the junta, they would say that the junta should stand in between the men's and women's rows. We can't have this individual praying with the men or the women because we just don't know. And we don't want to jeopardize the integrity of those spaces. And the junta cannot get married. And they would say that it's impermissible for the junta to get married, precisely because we don't know if the junta is a male or a female. Right. Um, and, and rulings like that tend to come up, even when it deals with questions of inheritance. Many of the fuqaha would say that the junta takes a middle between the inheritance share of the women and the men. So it, it sort of fits in the middle of that. And they would, they would apportion something that fits in between what men get and women get. Uh, you, you'll see that throughout when it comes to trying to negotiate how we deal with the junta vis-a-vis fiqh. On rare, rare occasions, the junta may remain ambiguous for life. Okay. Uh, in a minority view attributed to Imam Shafi'i, there is a permission for the junta. Now we're talking about someone who is ambiguous all the way down, physiologically, biologically, post-adolescence, I mean, um, and post-pubertal development. This is exceptionally rare exceptionally rare. I mean, most situations when we start talking about, so in sort of contemporary medicine, they talk about disorders of sexual development, DSD. Most DSD cases are of individuals that are um, gender unambiguous. So even if they have some physiological or biological aberrant or um, aberrant, uh, they have anomalous um, biological you know, functions, or realities that have emerged, you know, just as, you know, congenitally, right? Those things are uh, oftentimes correctable by a surgery. So you can have surgical corrections that, that regularize that person to their, his or her gender, or alternatively, they just nevertheless develop in ways that are congruent with their actual gender. So gender identification is in fact, in most cases where you have someone with a disorder of sexual development, not terribly difficult. In extremely, extremely, extremely rare cases, you do have individuals that remain ambiguous, meaning physiologically, biologically, even down to genetically, you're, you're looking at people that whose entire sort of phenotype is, is, is not gender, um, is not gender clear, right? You, you don't have a clear gender statement that is coming through. And there is a minority view uh, that I said here um, that's attributed to Imam Shafi that allows such a person to actually make a one-time non-retractable gender selection. The idea there would be that this ambiguous individual essentially chooses to be a male or a female. And from that point forward, he or she is regarded as a male or a female for the rest of its life. 
And that's that's the way that we're going to deal with that person vis-a-vis the Sharia. Again, a minority view, but nevertheless a view that exists in fiqh. So that's the khunta. That is the khunta um, category where we're dealing with biological nonconformity. And it is it is important once again to remind listeners that this category is a rare category. Today, especially, it's very easy to make clear gender determinations, even in situations where disorders of sexual development are there, simply because we can evaluate things at deeper levels, especially with imaging and different um, medical technologies that we have at our disposal. So we tend to know, hey, this is a male, but he has an additional appendage, or may, he may have some, you know, a hormonal imbalance or something like that that can be corrected vis-a-vis medicine or some surgical activity. Uh, however, you know, when you do have this very rare occurrence of someone that is top to bottom ambiguous, you have an entire discursive in the Sharia that deals with the junta and actually explicates a full tradition of how what the permissions and what the prohibitions are for the junta individual and how that person can in fact participate in the Muslim community. Now, sort of setting the issue of biological nonconformity to the side, we transition to people that are biologically unambiguous. Okay, And, and this is a category where we're talking about dispositional nonconformity someone who is dispositionally, they're not choosing to impersonate the opposite gender, but they simply have certain features or characteristics that appear like the opposite gender. And the largest discursive around this is the muhannath, and we'll talk about the muhannath here on this slide. The muhannath is an individual that is unambiguously male, no biological abnormalities to him. Yet he manifests certain feminine mannerisms and affectations ineluctably. So he's not choosing to do these things. And the most common examples include voice, gait, meaning how he walks, and mannerisms. So you may have a man whose voice simply sounds like a woman. Very high voice, sounds like a woman. If you were speaking to him on the phone, you wouldn't know whether you're speaking to a man or a woman. Uh, Likewise with gait, how he walks, you may have men who are not choosing to walk a certain way, but they actually have a sway that is most typically feminine and sometimes even flamboyant, right? If you were to look at it, you'd say this, you know, this man is appearing very flamboyantly feminine in the way that he walks. And likewise with other, other mannerisms, right? Sort of the movement of the hands and so forth. You can look at these things and say, well, this is a male but there are certain aspects of his behavior or in fact, just how he speaks that appear to me as quite feminine. And the scholars would refer to such a person as a muhannat individual. So an effeminate male, an effeminate male. If you're gonna translate muhannat, you'd say that this is an effeminate male. Now the question is what, what happens with the muhannat? You have situations that actually go back to the time of the Prophet where the muhannathin existed in his era. And the most famous story of a muhannath is this hadith of heat. And there are multiple narrations of this hadith. And the individual is often identified as having the name heat. You have other narrations that um, other scholars have speculated on the name. Some say that his name was uh, Mati'. Others say that the name was Hinb. You'll see all of these names reported in classical books 
uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, has a discussion on it. I believe this particular narration of the hadith is in Sunan Abi Dawood, although this hadith is narrated in other books as well. And this narration is from Aisha radiallahu anha, qalat kana yadkulu ala azwaadi nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mukhannatun fakanu ya'addunahu min ghayri ulil irbati fadakhala alayhi nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yawman wa huwa inda ba'di nisaihi wa huwa yana'atu imra'atan fakala innaha idha aqbalat aqbalat and so this is a very, very common report that you'll see. And the broad description of it is that you have this man who is a muhanna, And he was permitted to remain in the company of what we refer to as ajnabiyat, meaning non-mahram women. And in this narration, it says that he, in fact, was permitted to remain in the company of the wives of the Prophet And so he used to remain with the women. And the reason he was permitted to remain with them is because he was regarded as those who are from those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes in the Quran, right? In the very, in the verse, I believe in Surah An-Nur, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Or those men who have no uh, physical or erotic desire for women. Those are men that, it is permissible for women not to wear hijab in front of. You are not obligated to uh, cover in front of men who have no sexual desire whatsoever. And so this muhannath named Heat or Hinb, uh, Hinb or whatever his name was, this particular muhannath used to remain in the company of women because he was regarded a man who had no sexual desire whatsoever. And there was a man who was interested one of the Sahaba was interested in marrying a woman. And this Muhannath described to the man what that woman looked like by describing her belly folds. That when she goes one way, she has this many folds and she comes back, she has this many folds, so marry her. And he was describing it as an attractive feature. When the Prophet ﷺ heard him describing the women and their physical characteristics in that way, he forbade him from remaining in the company of the women. And he explicitly instructed them to remove him from their presence. In some narrations, in some narrations, the Prophet ﷺ banishes this muhannat to the outskirts of the city, to the outskirts of the city. Um, and so this is this is a really pivotal report when it comes to the entire fiqh tradition and speaking about the muhannath and the muhannath category. Uh, oh, but regarding the muhannath, uh, Mubin, yes, uh, yes. is it really the case that a lot of these effeminate men um, who have these you know, feminine uh, traits do not have sexual desires for females? It's, it's unclear. I mean, certainly some perhaps don't, some do, right? I, I don't think there's a single rule that characterizes them. There may be some men that really don't, they may be asexual, right? And they're also effeminate, but those two things don't necessarily overlap. There isn't a necessary relationship between those two. Nevertheless, this particular muhannath in this narration was assumed as being asexual, but once he began identifying and describing women, and understanding their features, 
he violated the confidence of that space, and the Prophet ﷺ forbade that from going forward. Okay, now, so it's not like the uh, so it's not like the jurists gave an open-ended um, uh, fatwa that you know any muhannath can just be around ajnabiyat no, regardless the, of sex, the, his sexual proclivities and and desires. no, no. In fact, in fact, I think I talk about that in more detail. But um, oh, let me go oh, back. So I, I will say that the, the, the jurists differed. You do have some of the fuqaha that say if there's a muhannat and he's sort of understood as being irba, he's assumed as being someone who has no physical or sexual desire, then it's permissible just the same way that the Prophet permitted it. And if he violates the confidence, he should be violated from those spaces the same way. Others said no. Others said no. I believe that's the position of the Shafi'iyah. Um, and I, I talk about this in the paper and sure. also some of the Hanafis where they say, no, this is actually a fully grown adult male and he can in fact marry women, right? Mm. Like it's, it's permissible for the Muhannath to get married. And so the very fact that he is eligible to wed women should mean that he is presumptively prohibited. And they also appeal to the fact that in some of the narrations where the Prophet wasallam prohibits the man from remaining in this company. In this narration here, it says, right? So he's just referring to the man himself. He's saying, you know, he's, he's forbidding that particular man. But in some narrations, the Prophet he says, he uses, right? So he uses the collective they. And he says, don't allow them or remove them from your company. And he says that to the women. And so the very fact that he uses the plural uh, to signify that they shouldn't be permitted is, is regarded as a broader prohibition that applies to muhannatin as a category and not simply to this individual heat as a person. So there, there is some khidaf over, you know, how, how should the muhannatin be treated vis-a-vis, um, you know, this question of remaining with the ajnabiyat or remaining with women who are non-mahram, especially when they're not fully veiled. Now, again, the we already talked about, you know, the we're muhannatin, they're unambiguously male. We, we mentioned that. Uh, oh, okay. So that's that's the dispositional non-conformity, right? So this is the category where we're talking about the muhannat khilqi, someone who is not choosing to behave this way, but just has certain features, behaviors, characteristics that are effeminate. I, I should also note that there is a female um, corollary to the muhannath, named the mutarajila. The mutarajila appears in hadith, specifically the hadith of la'an or the hadith of cursing. We'll talk about that. But as a phenomenon, we don't actually see it receive a lot of attention. Certainly you have no mutarajilats that uh, appear during the time of the Prophet and we don't have a larger fiqh discussion. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about possible reasons why that is. Why didn't the mutarajila get a lot of attention? Um, you know, is that the, the equivalent time. of a tomboy, or is it? Um, is it well, more and that's that, that's part of the question, right? When you, and this is just Allah knows best. This is the best explanation that I can sort of discern based on my own research. Is that if you look at the common examples that are included in works of fiqh and when they describe the muhannat, almost always there's two things that get mentioned. It's like the way they walk and their speech, sort of salt and mesh, right? Both of those things are mentioned almost without exception. 
When it comes to women, however, what does it mean to walk like a male for a woman? Right? Men really don't have any like clearly discernible ways of walking. Likewise, when you think about women's voices, it's like, I can't really think of an example where you have a woman whose voice is just so deep and masculine that if you heard her, you, you would think she's a man. That's, that's a very rare thing to encounter. So much so that, you know, you know, the alternative is not the case. Like you might actually encounter men who have um, voices that sound feminine. The reverse doesn't happen very much, if at all. And so when you start talking about mannerisms, right? A man having effeminate mannerisms, what does it mean to have masculine mannerisms for a woman? Like the tomboy example is interesting because the tomboy isn't someone who just ineluctably and congenitally has male, man male mannerisms. We're talking about a woman who is now expressing specific masculine interests. And so a woman who likes to play sports or dress like a guy or cut her hair short, things like that. But it's not as if the hair is just short on its own. It's not as if she was just born playing these sports. No, she, she's making choices here, right? As to the things that, you know, her relative interests. Whereas the muhannath here, especially when we're talking about the congenital case, we're talking about someone who's not really making choices. We're just talking about somebody who has been created a certain way. And it's not, he's not putting on an act, um, to, to put it a little bit more explicitly. So... Um, now, when we talk about affect, affected, affected nonconformity, people who are now deliberately making choices of the opposite sex, we're looking at the muhannath غير الخلقي, the non-congenital muhannath. So again, unambiguously male, no biological abnormalities, no congenital behavioral abnormalities. So not someone who actually sounds like a woman or anything like that, but, you know, has, is now choosing to impersonate women, right? That is condemned and prohibited by the consensus of the scholars. And there's this very famous hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, which is narrated all the big major books, where you have la'na Nabi وسلم, another hadith la'na Rasulullah that the Prophet, that the Messenger of Allah والسلام, cursed al-muhannathin min al-rijal, the effeminate men wal-mutarajilat min al-nisa and the mannish woman and the mannish woman. And in this narration, the Prophet وسلم, says, akhrijuhum min buyutikum, uh, just drive them out of your homes. And, and, uh, he says in this narration, that the Prophet actually um, you know, did this or drove one man out of his home, and then Umar did the same with another. So that's that's one narration, but again, this is this famous report where the curse uh, of the Prophet, certainly the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is on someone uh, who does this. Now, what what does this mean? Right, um, Imam Bukhari famously categorized this hadith within his chapter on libas, his chapter on clothing. And that is really the most explicitly condemned and prohibited form of imitation. And so we're not just talking about someone who has maybe an interest that typically is aligned with men or women. We're talking about someone now who is really publicly impersonating men or women, sort of the opposite sex in ways that are prohibited. So a man going out um, wearing feminine makeup, wearing feminine clothing, right? 
doing all of that or vice versa, right? A woman going out wearing explicitly male clothing, trying to dress up and everything to appear or present as a male. Um, when this is done, obviously, these, these are choices now that people are making. This is where the prohibition comes in. Such a person is additionally regarded as morally corrupt, and so they fall under the categorization of a fasiq, fasiq, someone who's morally corrupt. There's a lot of fiqh discussion that the jurists have over whether the fasiq can lead prayer. So should the fasiq be prayed behind? Whether one should eat the meat that the fasiq slaughters or whether to wed the fasiq to upright women. Fisk, to be clear, is not kufr, so it's not disbelief. And the blameworthy muhannath doesn't leave Islam on account of his sin. And it's also prohibited to use these terms as a slur, as a slur. You have a narration of the famous successor, Ata ibn Abi Rabah, rahimahullah, where one of his students suggested and speculated that a man with certain effeminate traits was in fact a muhannath. And when Ata heard that, he instructed his students to repeat their wudu, their prayers that day, and their fasting for having even made that suggestion. And so it is prohibited to use it as a slur. You'll additionally see this in the chapters of Qadf, Qadf uh, the slanderous accusation in fiqh. And there are punishments associated with slanderously accusing people of things. And you'll see the term muhannat also described there when it's used as a term of slur it becomes a slanderous accusation that is prohibited and potentially even punishable. So the conclusions here uh, from, from this sort of section itself, gender is binary. So we have men and women, and this is part of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation of us as human beings. Gender is normatively presumed on the basis of biology. And that's why when the junta situation comes up, we're actually trying to make a determination of what that person's sex or gender is. And we're doing so on the basis of biological interrogation. We're not just saying, hey, what is this, what is this child like to play with? Right? Like that's, that's not what we're doing. We're actually looking at biological indicants to help us understand whether this baby or this infant or this child is a male or a female. On rare occasions, biological ambiguities require determining gender. And the Sharia provides methods for that. And it also supports, as many fiqh assemblies do today, the medical uses for corrective procedures when those corrective procedures need to occur. And so when there are disorders of sexual development that can be rectified through medical intervention, it is in fact permitted. On extremely rare occasions, you have gender that cannot be determined biologically simply because somebody is gender atypical in all the way down biologically. And in such situations, a minority permit a one-time non-revocable gender selection, while the majority continue to regard such a person as a, an ambiguous junta and have a variety of rulings that that person should live under and observe. Mannish behavior for women and effeminate behavior for men are prohibited if done deliberately. And by this, we're really focusing on dress and public presentation more than anything else. We're not just talking about, hey, you know, um, this woman likes to watch sports or who knows, you know, play sports or this guy, I don't know, 
you know, likes figure skating or ice skating or something. I don't, you know, I don't even know what a prototypically <laughs> something that is exclusively female as an interest would be, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're really talking about something where behaviorally someone is, is trying to present as the opposite sex in ways that involve them making selections. So even, you know, a man deliberately lightening his voice to sound like a female, a man deliberately acting flamboyant, to present like a woman when those things are being done deliberately, you know, that that's where we have problems. I'll also add an additional thing that many of the scholars do talk about when it comes to the congenital muhanna. Okay. And, and I didn't mention this when it comes to the congenital muhanna, the vast majority of jurists say that the man who has certain feminine features on account of just him being born that way, Allah created him that way. There's nothing morally blameworthy about that person himself. So he's not a fasiq just because, you know, he's, he's a Muslim, he's a believer. And in fact, some of the scholars say that a muhannat can, in fact, someone who's sort of congenitally a muhannat can be a person of great piety, a great piety. Uh, some of the scholars say that such a person is obligated, and I believe this is the position of Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah, and others. I chronicle this in, in the paper where he says that such a person is obligated to make effort to regularize himself in a way that is conforming with his gender. And so if a man has a light voice that sounds feminine, he should at least, he is obligated to make effort to sound like a male. Or he is obligated to make effort to adjust the way he walks. Can he walk without that sway? Can he get accustomed to walking without that sway? If so, he is obligated to try it and to continue trying it. The majority of jurists say that such effort is not mandatory or obligated. Again, it's, it's just an area in which there is some disagreement. Nevertheless, the congenital muhannat, someone who simply is born this way and Allah created him that way, there's no blame on that person for those things that he's doing that are not his deliberate choice. And that's obviously a big difference from the affected muhannat for the muhannat ghayr al-khilqi, who is now making choices, or likewise with the mutarajila, who is making choices to present as the opposite sex and taking on um, the affectations of the opposite sex. Dispositional non-conforming behavior, as we said, is not sinful. And as I just mentioned, some require effort to regularize as much as possible, as much as possible. So I'll pause there. Do you, any questions up till now? Oh, no, great. Okay. No problem. So we're going to now sort of hit into our stride, which is the last two sections. And this, this entire, I, I guess, going forward, from this point going forward, we're going to be focused on part two uh, of the paper, which was published on Muslim Matters, I believe, in 2020. And this really focuses on contemporary transgenderism and under, understanding transgenderism as a topic. We'll also make a few digressions, but related digressions within the topic of gender itself so that we can understand how all of these things are interrelated and why it becomes complicated for us as individuals and certainly for us as a community and why, why it's really urgent for us to start thinking about this issue and addressing it seriously. Um, so, so we'll start here as uh, I think an important way to really begin this topic is by thinking of our gender ontology. What is our conception of gender? How do we understand gender itself? And you know, how has gender been reframed and recast 
in contemporary gender theory. Uh, the assumptions and debates over gender are significant today. Transgenderism itself is predicated on two things, which are, are interesting in some ways. On the one hand, it severs any necessary relationship between gender and sex. So your gender, which is how you psychologically conceive of yourself and how you present to the public, right? Your gender identity is seen as being almost a free-floating variable, entirely distinct from your biological sex. So these two things are seen as bearing no immediate relationship, right? On the other hand, it also radically destabilizes gender as a concept. And then it relies on very crude biological essentialisms to advance the idea that the only way in which gender can be fully affirmed is by making sex-based changes. And we'll talk about all of that. There's, there's all sorts of contradictions and incoherences that sit at the very heart of transgenderism as a sort of intellectual and conceptual uh, um, discursive, right? When you start thinking about this as a field of study and a field of literature and a field of writing and thinking, let alone as a social phenomenon, there's, there's all sorts of contradictions that are at the heart of it. Um, so gender, according to certainly contemporary gender theory, but any transgender advocate, him or herself will say the same thing is that gender is viewed as a function of social expectation. It is contributed to by various factors, importantly, environmental ones. And this is derivative of what certain feminists have been writing about for some time, especially Judith Butler, who herself borrowed the concept of performativity. And performativity is this idea that gender is something that we bring into existence. We apply certain social expectations on individuals. We craft and create certain terms and categories, and we apply them on individuals. And by, by employing the language that we do, by constructing the environment that we have, we bring gender into existence. And we retrench gender over and over again. We reinscribe this idea of gender in individuals through this ongoing practice of performativity. And so that, that, that's a really essential cog in the entire gender framework or the gender ontology of the contemporary gender theorists. And certainly many, many feminists themselves adhere to this as well. Gender here is socially constructed. Social constructionism features prominently, as I mentioned, gender theory. It undergirds much of the conceptual thinking that gives life to the trans movement. Um, contra constructionism, so grading against it, is a group of essentialists who believe that gender is principally rooted in objective biology. Um, this is a small group that appears to be growing by the day, but we'll also talk about why these essentialist currents can also represent certain challenges insofar as they, they themselves subscribe to sometimes very limited views of, of what gender actually entails. And so well, we'll talk about that as well. Um, Mubin, uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can't remember who, you know, where this, uh, to whom this view is attributed to, but I think there are some that hold the position that you know, we are not our bodies, but we are our souls. And therefore, our gender is assigned to our souls. Therefore, it's not rooted in biology. And then through social construction, um, we then come to know what our real personalities, or what our real gender is. Is that, you know, is that uh, an opinion that is rooted, uh, uh, 
you know, in, in the social, the pro social construct, uh, uh, position or, or, yeah, no, I, I haven't encountered that view. I mean, for the most part, most gender theorists and certainly people who are like scholarly in this field, Susan Stryker and others don't really talk about the soul. I, I don't think, I think most of them do commit to materialism as a philosophical presupposition of how we can evaluate human beings and reality and the world itself. Um, you know, sure. the, the, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. Because but, I think, I, I, but I could see how someone who is not an, a naturalist yet still adopts yeah. the social construction view. I could see how that view would could still mesh with the social, social construction view in the sense that it's, it's through social conditioning where we come to know what the gender of our souls really are. Uh, or yeah, I mean, in that, in, that, in that view, you know, what you're talking about is the soul representing a pre-social mm. part of our being, mm. but it, it, we only come to understand it through social relations. That, that would be the type of argument someone there would be making. Although, again, I, I haven't encountered a lot of people really discussing the soul at any serious level. Sure. In fact, one of the sure. problems that some of these people have, especially, especially gender theorists and even some f feminists, is on the one hand they're working very hard to destabilize the very category of gender. And, you know, that's why most of their discursive is, is ontologically thin. Um, they don't speak oftentimes about reality. They don't speak about things as, as being real in any serious sense. Uh, you know, Judith Butler has a very, very famous line where she talks about her, her own lesbianism. And she says that um, the only thing she's ever known Right? And I'm sort of paraphrasing, but she says the only thing she's ever known is how to be a lesbian. Mm. Right? And so she, she doesn't say the only thing I've ever known is being a lesbian. She says is how to be, right? That it itself is like what, what, what she understands herself as in the world is environmentally contributed in a way where this is how she has learned how to be, that she is performing in a particular way as a function of all of those social expectations and the way that she is related to them, but not that what she is can be described as something essential to her, right? Like it's, it's just been, it's been contingently constructed. And that contingent construction is, is, is something that she doesn't ever fully escape, right? And so, you know, some of these people are in fact working very hard to argue for a degendered society overall. We would be better off by getting rid of all of this gender business altogether. The gender itself is a sort of prison for the individual. We are unnecessarily confining people into these stultifying ways of conceiving of themselves. And in addition to this, there is a whole category of philosophers that all apply that same constructionist rhetoric to sex. And so not just gender constructionists, but sex constructionism, which is to say that the way you identify discrete biological features or characteristics of individuals is a choice that you're making. And that choice could be different, right? And so for instance, we, we would look at our fingers and we'd say we have five fingers, but we've created a label for them. We might say other societies never actually labeled individual fingers. They just spoke as the hand as a whole. And they just talked about the hand over and over again. And that's because the fingers were less relevant to them than the whole hand. So what you have is societies that are making choices about, you know, whether this finger should be viewed as distinct from the hand, as an important segment of the hand, 
or irrelevant, simply a piece of the total whole, which is the hand, right? They would say, likewise, we're making choices when we start saying, well, here are certain physical characteristics that this person has, their genitalia, this and that, and we're describing them and we're inventing terms and categories and we're calling those categories the sex of the individual, whereas there is no necessary reason for us to in fact go down that road. We can describe people differently. We can characterize them differently that may account for those physiological reasons, but nevertheless avoid committing us to this category of sex itself and recognizing that sex, that sex identification is in fact something that is constructed through our own devices. And so that's, that's a more radical strain uh, of, uh, of certain groups of, of transgender thinkers. Um, Kathleen Stock, I believe, has an article where she's written about this. It may have been in Quillette. I can't remember exactly where it was published, but you have some articles that have been written on, on this move as well. So again, it, it can get quite radical depending on the, on the thinker that you're engaged with. Um, some proponents of transgenderism have espoused essentialist arguments. And publicly, it is not uncommon to encounter essentialist views about transgenderism. And what I mean by that is that they don't simply speak about gender as something that is constructed, but they talk about it as something that is essential to the individual, right? I am a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm essentially a man or a woman, but you know, I, I'm who I am internally is the essence of my being. So I'm they're trying privileged. to they're trying to preserve the objectivity of gender, but so, not but uh, but trying to avoid rooting it in biology. Absolutely, absolutely, right. And so people will suggest that there's something internal that constitutes the essential gender of the individual. Uh, some appeal to biological considerations, in fact, including DNA. So if you remember the genetic arguments for homosexuality, that it's genetically informed, you do have some people that say, well, it's genetic. Obviously, it's a far-fetched argument to make when it comes to transgenderism, simply because, you know, when you start appealing to genetics, you know, gender difference as a biological reality becomes far more substantial and it's difficult to support transgenderism. And so the focus for people who really argue a biological essentialism to transgenderism and gender nonconformity is the brain. And you'll see a lot of writings on the trans brain itself. And the reason behind that, a couple of things. One is that men and women do have radically different brains when it comes to gray matter, white matter, the hippocampus, right? There, there are a lot of differences between the male and female brain. Um, nevertheless, the brain structure studies, and you, you, it's very interesting. You'll read some studies that are highly, highly political. Um, that endorse this idea that transgender persons, quote unquote, have a brain structure that is divergent from their biological sex. Um, those studies have largely been repudiated. And so the brain structure or the trans brain argument continues to hold some cultural social currency. But I think in serious sort of medical spaces, no one really adheres to it. And I actually examined some of those studies, as well as the critiques that those studies have solicited. Um, in, in the article itself. So people who are interested in that aspect of sort of the entire discursive of transgenderism, they, they can find a good dialogue and uh, overview of that topic and examination in the paper, uh, The Male's Not Like the Female Part Two, inshallah. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Anne Lawrence, and this is just a segment where she's a writer who did a fair amount of analysis, especially on the big papers that were being used to assert this transbrain theory. She writes, the brain sex theory was never helpful in explaining clinical observations. Now it has become irrelevant to explaining neuro neuroanatomical observations. It is time to abandon the brain sex theory of transsexualism and to adopt a more plausible and clinically relevant theory in its place. And so there are a number of people who have written similarly about the fact that these past studies should be disregarded. We need to stop engaging things that are pseudoscience or simply cannot hold up even under a minimum level of scrutiny. Um, so that's when we start talking about gender ontology, these are just some of the issues that we encounter today. Now, when we start thinking about Islam and gender, the question is how do we conceive of gender as Muslims? Islam's treatment of gender is principally anchored in biological composition. And we saw this even with the Khunta and the Khunta Mushkil, sort of where, where does it begin? It begins with biology. Men and sim women simply are as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them with deep differences biologically and otherwise. Um, in addition to that, gender differences are confirmed and often accentuated in the Sharia. They are given effect and honored with rulings that relate to our differences and bear on us as individuals. One of the things I find very interesting, and this is part of the reason why transgenderism becomes a difficult topic for Muslims, is that gender is such a difficult topic for Muslims. We are living in a time where there are active efforts, both in scholarly spaces and non-scholarly spaces, to gender neutralize our society to treat gender difference as something that is hostile specifically and especially for women, that it somehow oppresses them to think of themselves as categorically different than, than men. And there's been so much effort put into not even sort of evening the playing field, but of denying that men and women have different capacities. And this is why so much of the Sharia presents as difficult to everyday Muslims, because when they start encountering gender difference in the fiqh tradition, in the Quran, in the sunnah, they receive it as something that is uncomfortable for them. They see it as atavistic or outdated. They look at it and they say that that must have been a vestige of patriarchal times and eras, pre-technological societies, and so forth, right? Where, where your entire society was patriarchal and heteronormative and all of these, you know, nefarious things such that women didn't really actively have a voice. And so you have this gender denialism that many Muslims are constantly engaged in or gender minimalism, right? The, the gender is only substantial in these specific areas, but otherwise we're supposed to disregard it. And I, I find it fascinating at times because you'll have people who write about gender in a way that almost treats Islam and the Sharia as if it doesn't really affirm gender difference in a meaningful way, when the exact opposite is the case. And you can hardly study a chapter in fiqh except that you come across deep differences between how certain things are done for men and women. And this begins with tahara and all the way through hajj and buying some, I mean, everything. Everything is inflected by questions of gender. And so, you know, people who deny those differences, I think oftentimes, or minimize them perhaps to make Islam 
um, more appealing for young Muslims who grade against this notion of gender difference, I think are doing themselves a disservice and doing young people a disservice and their sort of constituents a disservice insofar as they're misrepresenting the Sharia. But they also set themselves up because how can they then go about confronting questions like contemporary gender theory? Because they've absorbed, imbibed, and endorsed so many of its presuppositions related to gender. And so this entire topic is interrelated, right? The way we speak about, the way we treat, the way we deal with questions of gender is going to directly impact and influence whether or not we can actually maintain a coherent position in the face of transgenderism and contemporary gender theory. Um, and again, this, this particular section on Islam and gender, it's fleshed out in a lot more detail and that's uh, in that article as well that I referred to, the male is not like the female part two. So we'll, we'll return back to that conversation a little bit, inshallah, um, as we go forward and we talk about Islam and gender in the next section and Islam and transgenderism, but sort of returning to transgenderism for the moment. Transgenderism itself is a topic that has its own history. The history of transgenderism is a hugely contested field. Very, and this, this likewise applies to queer history itself. One of the questions that comes up is how much can you conflate between histories, societies, cultures, and what is happening in the contemporary West? One of the things contemporary Western actors tend to do is they take everything that you know, historically can be smuggled in or assimilated into its political or activist program. And it treats all of those things in a manner that is uniform and unified. And so you'll see this when it comes to transgender history is that they'll take all non-conforming history and they'll make it part of their story, right? Eunuchs, right? Hijras, third gender personas and tribes. You know, Joan of Arc was transgender. What, what does that even mean? What does it mean when you start referring to historical figures in this way? Or you start referring to different social phenomenons in different societies in different places and say, well, that's, that's all transgenderism. Well, you know, did, did these people, like were eunuchs, did they look at themselves and say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? Did they identify in that manner? What do they know about hijras, for instance, in the subcontinent, such that they can talk about them as transgender persons? Right? That there's a lot of appropriation. There's a lot of appropriation of other people's histories into these contemporary categories in a way that, that bolsters their own public arguments and allows them to present themselves as something that, that sort of has a huge history to it. Like what they're arguing for intellectually, what they're arguing for philosophically is something that predates the modern world, predates the late 20th century, right? And suddenly now we have, we have a whole diverse range of peoples and societies and cultures that can all be tied into this, this movement for liberation and freedom and affirmation and, and the civil rights struggle of the transgender person. Now, as understood today, transgenderism is really a very, very modern phenomenon. When we start thinking about transgenderism, as it's understood and the way it's spoken about. The first surgical operation done on an individual when we talk about sex change surgeries was done for Lily Elby. And that was a Danish painter who underwent surgical intervention in 1930 in Germany. It was highly experimental at the time. 
he underwent four more surgeries and died in the year 1931. So roughly a year after the first surgery went, uh, he went through the first surgery and then, you know, four surgeries later died. It was very, very experimental procedure at the time. Later on, you had more people who went, underwent sex change surgeries and obviously they became better at performing them. And so you have this man who was born George Jorgensen. Um, he died in the year 1989, transitioned to Christine Jorgensen, underwent surgical procedures roughly 20 years later. So in about 1950, 1951, Jorgensen became a celebrity, lived a very, very public life. Uh, came back, was featured in magazines, invited to a lot of these white collar banquets, um, you know, media attention, all the rest. If I'm not mistaken, I think Jorgensen was actually a military member. And so, you know, there, there were a lot of, there were a lot of public, uh, um, there, there was a lot of public attention that the Jorgensen experience attracted. Sex change surgeries were not available in the United States until 1965. And Johns Hopkins was the university that initiated uh, sex change surgeries in the United States. And that particular program, which was part of the Johns Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic, was shut down in the year 1979, so 14 years after they started. There are tragedies that abound in the history of transgenderism and even today. Um, and so uh, one of the cases that's really significant is actually within the experience of Johns Hopkins in the United States. And this is often referred to as the infamous John Joan case, um, or also referred to as the David Raymer case, David Raymer case. And the story begins with these parents who have a child uh, named Bruce Raymer. And he suffers as an infant after being born a botched electrocauterization procedure that was intended to treat and remediate his phimosis as an infant. The botched treatment leave this infant's penis damaged beyond surgical repair. And so the parents of Bruce Raymer consult John Money. John Money had recently established the Johns Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic in the year 1965. John Money is a really critical figure. He was from New Zealand. He, is, he was sort of on the bleeding edge of reconceptualizing gender, gender identity, endorsed a very strong constructionist view of gender itself. John Money persuaded the parents to raise Bruce a girl. He said, we're not going to be able to repair the damage that was done to his genitals as an infant. But what we can do is begin right now and transition this boy into a girl. And let's do sex change surgery on this, on this um, young boy, baby Bruce, and raise Bruce as a woman. And so Bruce was raised as Brenda, was raised as Brenda. He had ongoing consultations and appointments with John Money. He was given medications from a very young age. Bruce had a twin. Uh, I can't remember his twin's name, but he had a twin that he was born with. Uh, it's, it's very interesting and very sad and tragic, this particular story. Uh, you know, Bruce later in life would write a autobiography or have an autobiography authored about himself. It's reported, you know, in that autobiography, he talks about the sessions that he had with John Money and his brother. Uh, money would repeatedly misrepresent the nature of those appointments. He would not divulge everything that took place in them. At times, he would have the two brothers perform sexual acts on one another. 
in other times, he would have them do very grotesque things. Um, he threatened to kill himself on more than one occasion. And he told his parents that if they continued to force him to go to John Money, he was going to commit suicide. At the age of 13 or 14, his parents confessed what had happened, that he was born as a boy, and this is what they did. A year later, he decided to detransition and to go back to being a boy. And he started going by the name David when he learned of his past. He wrote a memoir. He committed suicide in his 30s. Um, his brother, Brian, Brian, he developed schizophrenia. He became addicted to antidepressants and narcotics, and he overdosed in his 30s as well. So both the boys, um, both the boys died of suicide. Um, this particular event was hugely scandalized, and it led, it was one of the main reasons, in fact, that the gender identity clinic in Hopkins, at Hopkins, was closed in 1979. Um, there were a number of papers that were written essentially apologizing um, money, not money, I think money himself, but certainly others wrote in journals and elsewhere. And this, these, are, these are also mentioned and examined in the paper um, about the fact that it really was ineffectual. Um, they, they weren't able to have any key success stories that came out, out of that gender identity clinic. Uh, money is regarded as a key figure in the development of transgenderism. Um, John Money was also a controversial figure because he wrote pieces on pedophilia, and he also advocated destigmatizing incest. He advocated destigmatizing incest. He saw it as a form of natural love, natural love that societies need to endorse and support. So when we start talking about the history of transgenderism, you have a couple of key figures that become very seminal. You also have sort of medical programs that um, start uh, going underway, but then experience scandal and controversy. Now the question here comes in, well, how do we understand transgenderism as a phenomenon today? How does it manifest itself socially and culturally? And there is, there is a lot of debate over the phenomenology of transgenderism, huge amount of debate. And it really depends on who you're talking to. Most almost all people agree that all transgenderism cannot be accounted for according to a uniform theory or a unified theory. There's not, no single theory that can be used as a sort of meta theory to describe transgenderism as a whole. Nevertheless, you do have some shifts that have occurred. One of the major shifts that's occurred in language, which we talked about in the beginning, but really was very important when it comes to transgenderism today, is the shift in language with gender identity disorder, which is the clinical condition that was used to describe what we today refer to as gender dysphoria. So GID, gender identity disorder, was changed to gender dysphoria in the year 2013. Um, and the assumptions of both terms are important as the reason why. So gender identity disorder, uh, treated as presumptively problematic the fact that a person had a divergent gender identity, right? They had a gender identity problem, right? Which was a mental illness. Now what they're saying is that the problem is the dysphoria. So the relevant psychological concern is one of distress, anxiety, anguish. How do we get that person to a feeling of comfort with who they are? And so gender dysphoria has, has been designated and um, coined for that reason. Affirmative therapy advocates, and affirmative therapy is really, as I said, the most popular approach. It's looked at as the moral, ethical, and supportive way of being a trans ally. 
um, they promote full-on support. They, they say that it is our moral responsibility as individuals to support people who are going through or dealing with gender dysphoria. And the controversy over their, their conceptualizing of support is that support often entails urging to the point of coercion. Even in more benign forms, studies suggest that affirmative therapy invariably leads to medical interventions and full transitions. And so what affirmative therapy ends up being in practice is really an approach where once, once any individual starts getting affirmative therapy, the next step is going to be a transition. Right? The affirmative therapy really doesn't countenance the possibility that a person is merely confused or going through a phase in his or her life. Right? Those types of things are completely off limits. In fact, that possibility is frequently looked at as offensive. Um, and this has become a point of controversy even amongst trans advocates. In recent years, you've had surgeons who conduct uh, sex reassignment surgery, right? sex change surgeries, and are working in gender clinics who are saying, we, we really need to slow down and interrogate some of these cases and do a better job vetting. And this is something that I really don't understand in the United States in particular. In Europe, we see, especially recently, a number of developments where institutions and government, um, you know, sort of policy law, all of these things shifting to at least introduce some criteria and limits to the reflexive move to affirmative therapy. And even people who espouse and support transgenderism in those societies are recognizing that it doesn't help the movement to have people who aren't really like prepared, ready, or going through like a full, they, they don't need a full gender sort of change or transition to be pushed into that in ways that ignores any reluctance that they could possibly have. They see that as potentially jeopardizing the integrity of their movement. In the United States, however, that discourse has not emerged in any meaningful way whatsoever. And in fact, far left groups, which are now well represented politically and, other, and, and in other influential spaces, continue to insist upon pushing the envelope further and further. And, and we'll talk about that as we move forward, John. Now, although it's contested, you do have a group of psychologists who are disparagingly regarded as transphobic by trans advocates. They've endorsed the following schematization for understanding gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria. I'll use gender dysphoria just because it's the contemporary term, even though I personally am of the view that gender identity disorder obviously is a more accurate characterization of what it is that we're dealing with. Nevertheless, they schematize it a certain way. And I think that these psychologists have done a decent job in trying to understand this phenomenon and, and sort of group it into almost family groupings, right? They're not saying that this is, this is the, these are the only ways that transgenderism comes about, but this broadly characterizes the majority of cases. And it's helpful in understanding sort of the methods, the themes associated with them, what people should be looking out for. And what they do is they, they break down transgenderism into three large groups. They say that you have gender dysphoria that exists amongst children. So childhood onset gender dysphoria. You have autogynephilic, autogynephilic gender dysphoria, and then you have rapid onset gender dysphoria. And inshallah, I'll describe those in the coming slides. So we'll, we'll, we'll walk through these one by one, inshallah. So the first of these is uh, childhood onset. 
gender dysphoria, and this is by far the most controversial category. It's also referred to as early onset gender dysphoria. And what this refers to is children who are as young as three years old who behave like the other sex in a variety of ways, including preferences of dress and appearance, play style, playmate preference, and interests and goals. Um, Childhood onset gender dysphoria has a significant correlation with autism spectrum disorder. And this is another reason why controversies come up. Samples of adolescents who are referred to gender identity services reveal that six to 20% of such cases also have autism spectrum disorder. So it's quite high, much higher than the sort of normal population. Uh, Early studies show that children who struggle with gender, children who struggle with gender and sort of their own gender identity, quote unquote, and behavior naturally go through the assistance, meaning that they regularize with their biological sex and the gender that they're born into. They they naturally desist in about 84% of cases. Some studies report even higher rates. There are some studies that report lower rates, but you know, you're looking at at least 70% and upwards of 90% of children who, if you just kind of leave them alone and you let them grow up and they grow through puberty, they're not gonna have this issue anymore. Right? That's, we're not dealing with you know, a, a woman trapped in a man's body or something. You're just dealing with the child really does, isn't even developed sexually, right? Doesn't really have a clear conception of gender identity that is merely struggling because of perhaps different environmental, social issues that they're dealing with. Maybe they're just different in other ways, right? But they don't have to be uh, reflexively pushed into this transgender current. And that, that's, that's a big problem here. Trans activists fight against all of this, really tooth and nail. They refer to this as the desistance myth that young people left alone will desist. They accuse the studies of transphobic intent. They say that young people should be fully entitled to go through transitions and be supported um, in their transitioning. It is a battleground topic today. Medical intervention for children approaching adolescence is a big, big area of debate. Affirmative therapy advocates support full and unobstructed access to puberty blockers and subsequent hormone therapy. So puberty suppression should be something that children can make a decision around without their parents intervening or having a say. Um, I mean, doctors- I, I, you know, just, just trying to understand their perspective. I mean, we do not allow children to make such radical life transforming and possibly permanent decisions in any sphere of decision-making. I mean, uh, uh, you know, okay, fine. Like, uh, I mean, at the very least, okay, fine. You believe in this whole thing, but like at the very least recognize that they're children and perhaps set an age limit and say, okay, you know what? Wait until they're 12 or wait until they're 15 and then let them decide. But no, it's like they're, 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 they're allowing children to, You know, I, I, I just don't understand that, like, even the, the, how, how they could allow something like that. Well, what's the, their perspective on this point? Like, if one were yeah. to probe them, I, I know their response may not be convincing to us, but I'm curious to know their response. Like, how, how can you allow children to make such a decision? That's a good question. I think there are a couple of things that go on, right? And I actually think some of their arguments are pretty serious arguments. One of the things is, how do you conceptualize transgenderism, right? Or, or 
being unaffirming as a parent. Okay? There are certain things as a society that we don't tolerate or entitle parents to do simply because they're parents. In other words, parents don't just own their children the way that you might own something that you've bought from a store. You can't abuse your child, for instance, physically or otherwise. And if you are, if someone calls child protective services, we have child protective services for a reason. We have child protective services precisely because we recognize that children cannot protect themselves in many cases, and sometimes are going to be subject and victim to horrible forms of abuse, and they need to be saved from those circumstances and contexts. What they would say is that not affirming children is a form of abuse. And if you're allowing children to remain in abusive homes, the likely outcome is going to be suicide. And so are you going to stand pat while these children become suicidal and take their own lives? Or are you going to intervene as a society and save their lives? So now you've really upped the ante when you start talking about this. You're not just talking about a child that wants to play dress up. You're talking about, you're talking about, a, you're talking about a decision that's life or death. The other thing they do, and this is the argument that I, I, when I mentioned that I think some of them are serious, this I think is a very serious discussion is, you know, what they do is they problematize discussions of consent and even childhood, even childhood, right? What does it mean to be a child? What is the dividing line between child and adult? What does it mean to say that children can't consent to, their, to specific decisions or they can't make informed decisions about their own lives at certain ages? Right? They might concede, okay, perhaps a three-year-old can't, but who's to say a five, seven, eight, ten-year-old doesn't have the intellectual wherewithal and the personal wherewithal to make a decision like that? Right? Like what, what magically changes between 17 and 18 or 14 and 15 such that one child is strictly prohibited from exercising his or her right in a society and the other is fully entitled to make that exact same decision? What is the cosmic event that happens, right? And that, that's like a philosophical argument, right? And it's a serious one because, you know, if you, were to, if you sit back and think about it, I mean, we, we look at it as ourselves. I mean, even the Sharia, an individual is mukallaf. They are morally accountable after puberty, right? And even if that, you know, a child goes through puberty at the age of 12 or 13, they may still be young in society and looked at as a child. But vis-a-vis -vis the Sharia, we're not looking at adults, we're not looking at adults. You'd say, well, you know, you're not, you have to pray five times a day. You have to fast the month of Ramadan. You have to do all these things because you're an adult in the Sharia, even though society is still looking at you as a child. Right? Well, society I, well, has I, I guess from within the Islamic paradigm, um, yeah. you, you know, we could, we could try to be consistent, but, uh, yeah. you know, but if we were to probe them on their consistency and it's like, okay, fine. So you're, 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 you're recognizing that children uh, have reached are capable of discernment on an extremely life-transforming uh, decision that will impact their lives permanently, especially if you're going to use puberty blockers and whatnot. Yet you don't consistently allow them to make such radical decisions in any other sphere, uh, whether it's like, okay, you're, you're not going to listen to kids who say, you know, I don't want to go to school anymore, for example. Right. Well, so well, some I mean, of those people, that, that's, that's where I'm kind of interested in terms of how are they, how are they view, like, uh, you know, uh, at the least, like, let's, uh, I mean, I'm trying to put, I'm even trying to put myself in their shoes and wondering like, okay, let's say I thought that gender is a construction and whatnot is a social construction. I mean, I would tell myself, okay, you know, let's at least let's wait until they're 12, something like yeah. that. But yeah, uh, like, and they may four year olds, 
who go to school no. and they're probably get they're probably getting confused by their teachers and they read a story and they're little children that just don't understand. No. And well, the medical impact their rhythm no. for the rest of their lives. Crazy. Yeah. Well, the medical interventions don't begin till adolescence. So you are talking about yes. 10, 11, 12 years old when you start with puberty suppression, because that's that's when that medication becomes um, something that actually is going to take effect because it's now suppressing them, their pu- pubertal development at an age where puberty would otherwise occur, right? Um, so you're not talking about medical interventions before that. Uh, what they would say before that is that parents are obligated or should be obligated to provide affirmative support for their children such that they don't suppress their children and their children's desires to behave, act, and dress, and you know everything else as the opposite gender. And parents that do discourage that are in fact acting in a way that's abusive. So that that's that's where the abuse area angle would come in. The adult angle comes in with the medicalization decisions, right? And that's and what they'd say is, look, there are what their type of argument would be that not everything should be treated with a broad brush. We need to be intelligent enough to recognize that, you know, there are qualitative differences between different decisions that individuals are going to make. And as a society, we need to permit people to make those decisions at an age that's appropriate relative to their mature maturing and individual development and the type of decision that's being made. So they'd say, look, a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old is old enough to make a decision about whether or not he or she wants to go through puberty or would rather begin socially transitioning or medically transitioning to the opposite sex. They might say that that same child is not sort of fully capable of making a decision about leaving school or abandoning school um, because that, that, you know, that, type of decision is going to have career implications and consequences on their livelihood and families and whether or not they're able to earn an income. And so the type of entailment of that decision is really significant, whereas they'd say that this decision is life-saving and that child knows what's going to save his or her life better than anybody else, right? Like who, who if, if you think about it, it's, there's, there's an element here, even of body ownership of individual and personal sovereignty, radical privileging of the li- liberty of the individual. These are all things that are sit at the center. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of these things sit at, at the heart of the individual. So again, this is a very controversial area precisely because these are really active debates. Um, doctors, psychologists, and activists in the affirmative therapy camp insist medical complications are rare or non-existent. And this has been misrepresented for quite some time. And uh, especially especially in American media and even, even very politicized uh, research publications. Uh, more radical advocates push for medical intervention without parental consent. Some states in the US today allow for 15 year olds to begin medical transitioning without parental consent. And some even provide state state subsidized funding in order for that transition to occur medically. So the state of Oregon is one of them. I believe the state of Washington is another. So you do have some states, especially liberal states where you you have children that can be quite young that can make decisions and they provide full support, even even, um, housing. So relocation out of a parent's home, if a parent's going to be unsupportive, there, there are a number of things like that that tend to happen. In fact, there was, there was a case in the state of Washington involving a Muslim family. I believe it was a Pakistani family. And this is something that Abigail Schreier wrote about in City Journal, where they, this family had a child who 
had gone through a number of psychological episodes. I believe the child was on the spectrum, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but she wrote about this child. I, I guess he was suicidality had struggled with for a number of years, but he was a boy. Um, he went, uh, I guess he was admitted for something into the hospital in the state of Washington. Um, when he was there, he met with a therapist who sort of convinced him that he was in fact a woman. And uh, the parents uh, were restricted from actually gaining custody of their child because the therapists and uh, those treating the child were unsure of whether or not the parents were going to be sufficiently supportive. Uh, the father ended up calling friends of his, doctors and others and lawyers. He was told that he has to at least present as fully supportive. And so he did that. He went there. He scheduled all these subsequent follow-up appointments. He showed that he was fully affirming and using, you know, the right pronouns and language and all of that. He regained custody of his son and he moved out of the state immediately. He just, he, he left the state of Washington. Um, and that's, that's basically what he had to do. Otherwise, he was never going to see his son again. I mean, that's, that's literally what he was looking at. And so, you know, this is, this is how, how out there some of these states have become when it comes to this particular issue. Uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, oftentimes referred to as WPATH, um, very influential organization. They, they actually set recommendations and guidelines for transgender policy. In fact, I believe Pakistan as a country has actually... Uh, passed certain laws related to transgenderism, and they've done so on the basis of WPATH recommendations, which WPATH recommendations are more extreme than what's law today, even in America. So they endorse the age of 14 as the age in which, um, you know, at that age, no more parental, like that's the age of consent for transitioning. And they endorse age, age 14 for that. So. The safe approach is viewed as social transitioning. And so when it comes to childhood gender dysphoria, what they'll say is that the safest thing you can do if a child is exhibiting some gender atypical behavior is to begin experimentation. And so let's say you have a boy, and, and this, is, this is very conventional. I'm not sort of caricaturing this at all or parodying it. If you have a young boy, let's say this boy is five years old or six years old, and he likes playing with dolls, and makeup and things like that. Um, you know, let's say it's a six-year-old boy who does that. They would say that it is your responsibility as a responsible parent and a caring parent to explore whether or not that boy is in fact actually a girl on the inside. And so if you have a boy, and let's use a Muslim example, and this boy's name is Abdullah, he should, you should have a female name for him as well. So Fatima. And one day a week, you're going to have Abdullah dress up like we're Abaya or something, right? He's going to dress like a Fatima and everybody's going to call him Fatima. You're going to speak him of him as a girl. And that's going to happen one day a week. And over time, you know, you can work with Abdullah to see whether or not he likes his Fatima day or not. And if he likes his Fatima day, he can have two Fatima days and then three and then four. And it can be every other day. And you begin to iteratively expand the number of days in which this boy is now living as a girl until you have enough data to understand what his dominant gender identity is. 
And at that point, the social transition is, hey, now we know he's Fatima. To continue to give him an Abdullah day would in fact be oppressive. And so that's, that's how social transitioning happens. Social transitioning is this approach where we just try to allow this child to socially experience the opposite gender to get him or her to understand whether or not that's really right for them. And of course, the controversy over social transitioning is it, it really, all it does is it urges this child and it gets this child used to living as the opposite gender. And so what you're doing is you're exacerbating different psychological and behavioral dysfunctions rather than recognizing that this may just be a small phase or really nothing at all, right? Like the six-year-old, okay, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. If you listen to even physicians, um, you know, serious medical professionals, we're talking about leading voices in this spaces, they'll even talk about pre-verbal children, pre-verbal children who give indications that they are in fact gender dysphoric, right? Like what are the pre-verbal indications that can help you identify in an infant, whether that infant is suggesting gender difference um, from, from their biology, right? So how, what are the cues that you can pick up on? Um, that's, that's, that's how radical it can get. In fact, I believe it was the, the woman who leads the gender identity clinic at the hospital in San Francisco, where she said that a, a baby who begins to talk, and if it's a girl, and she says, I boy, that just that statement itself is a major sign that we're dealing with gender dysphoria and that perhaps we need to start exploring gender difference even at the age of an infant, right? And so what we're talking about, you know, some of these people have very radical ideas when it comes to uh, gender dysphoria and the way in which children should be treated, approached, and dealt with when they, when they have these different struggles or frankly, even non-struggles. Um, Joseph Nicolosi is an interesting figure. He died in 2017. I believe he was Catholic. He was definitely a Christian. He's a very, very controversial figure precisely because he defended conversion therapy. Um, as I understand it, I, I think his defense of conversion therapy was primarily a defense of conversion therapy existing, that there shouldn't be laws out there. Uh, outlawing it. The conversion therapy should be something that exists. It should be experimented with, it should be tried, um, you know, even if it wasn't his form of therapy. He developed his own approach and he referred to it as reparative therapy. The idea behind it, uh, reparative therapy is that you address underlying traumas and you help clients discover wholeness. And his reparative therapy framework was really focused on homosexuality. It was not focused a whole lot on transgenderism. Nevertheless, he applied his reparative therapy framework to include childhood gender dysphoria. And he didn't have a lot of writings on it, but this is one of them. I have a couple of quotes from it. And he says in this writing, he says, experts in the area of childhood gender identity disorder have found certain patterns in the backgrounds of GID children. A common scenario is an over-involved mother with an intense yet insecure attachment between mother and child. And the emphasis there is in the original. Mothers of GID children usually report high levels of stress during the child's earliest years. This is the same dynamic that we see in the fetish, where the boy is taking in a piece of mommy 
her shoes, her scarf, and developing an intense and later sexualized attachment to an object associated with her. And so that's, that's the framework. And these are some of the theories that he had when it comes to childhood gender dysphoria. So that's the first category. The second category is autogynephalic gender dysphoria. Historically, this is the most common category. This term itself is controversial and it's, it was coined by a figure named Ray Blanchard. Um, he's a sexologist. I believe he's based in Toronto. He's a very controversial figure. A lot of people hate him and call him transphobic. Um, autogynephalia denotes a male, adolescent, or adult who demonstrates a propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself as a female, as a female. Okay. So the underlying cause of gender dysphoria in this scenario is understood as an overgrown fetish. It is an overgrown fetish. 75% of cases where men transition to female in Western countries have involved autogynephalic patients in some studies. So some studies have been done where they show the vast majority of those men who are transitioning are in fact those whose gender dysphoria is informed by this fetish. It is in fact a fetish that is, that is outgrown. Blanchard conceives of this fetish as a sexual orientation. And he would say that there's a spectrum where you have people who are sort of straight heterosexual, then you have people who are homosexual, and then you have people who are autogynephalic, right? And that's, that's like an extreme, extreme sexual orientation. Not all who experience autogynephalic GD, gender dysphoria, transition, or even express gender dysphoria. Many get married and have children. It is said to exist along a spectrum, some cases a lot more extreme and severe, others less so. It is a controversial idea among trans activists and even among those who experience it. So, you know, even people who are experiencing it, they'll deny it simply because the idea of being a woman trapped in a man's body is a more socially acceptable and less embarrassing explanation for what they're going through than really reckoning with their own sexual feelings and feelings of erotic arousal which as I mentioned, can be a bit more embarrassing to acknowledge in public spaces. And they recognize that the social acceptability of something like that is not going to gain public acceptance in the same manner. Nevertheless, you know, Ray Blanchard tends to say that this is a controversial idea for social reasons and not scientific or intellectual or psychological ones. Um, on uh, autogynephalic gender dysphoria, I'll also mention that, as I said, this is the most common category historically. When you think about representations and storylines, you know, you'd see this in shows occasionally or movies where, you know, a guy cross dresses in the evenings and, uh, you know, people doing things like that. A lot of those people would fall within this category as well, right? The type of gender dysphoria they have, their sort of arousal, addressing like a woman and things like that. Some of them, they would just get it out of their system that way, quote unquote. Um, but nevertheless, it's something that they had to struggle with in their lives. Um, and people, people have this, right? Like it's, it's sort of a real condition in some ways that people have to wrestle with. The last category, and this is... Um, the most recent one is rapid onset gender dysphoria. Rapid onset gender dysphoria is the fastest growing category of gender dysphoria. And so the majority of cases that gender identity clinics are getting today fall within this category. 
It's observed primarily in female adolescents and young adults. So over 80% of the cases involve women. Many have other mental health disorders. So body image issues, um, self-harm, right? Or different stressors in their lives, eating disorders, things like that, right? That they're struggling with, right? This, there seems to be some correlation between those. Um, no, we're talking about individuals who have no history of gender dysphoria or non-conformity. And it comes about very quickly. So you're talking about someone who might be 15 years old or 16 years old, a girl shows up and she says, you know, I think I'm a boy. And up till that age for the past 14 and a half years, you have never seen anything to suggest that this girl would in fact be a boy. But now suddenly the girl feels a greater sense of alienation. She's gone through different things. And now she's, she's coming to you and saying, I'm a boy, I need to be supported. I'm going to start dressing like one. My hair is going to start, you know, starts cutting her hair shorter, starts going by a male's name. The social transition occurs quickly, wants to do medical things. And, you know, it just, it, it all can happen very rapidly relative to, to what happens in most cases of, of gender dysphoria. Social contagion is the main factor. And so social contagion just refers to a variety of social events that come together to actually produce this particular form of gender dysphoria. Um, sometimes it can be positive encouraging, meaning that some, somebody can go through something where you know, all of their friends are transitioning now. Um, there are stories where, for instance, you have a popular coach, a woman's, you know, a, a girl's volleyball coach or a girl's sports coach who transitions male. And then within two years of that, every single member of the team has transitioned as well and has come out as non-binary. Right. And so you have stories like that, a friend's group, right? All of them come out as non-binary. Those type of things can happen very quickly. Social media exposure can play a huge factor and role, especially for people who are socially alienated, don't have a lot of friends. They receive the affirmative support from Tumblr, Reddit, certain online spaces and forums where they develop community. They can conceive of themselves as victims, which can be very empowering in a society like ours. They can find company and friendship and solidarity with others. And so that's very important. Other times you have traumatic experiences, right? Where you have girls or boys who have been bullied or are insulted or mocked and ridiculed because they're not masculine or feminine enough. Right. It's, it's not one social event. There, there are a variety of things that contribute to it, but nevertheless, what you have is somebody who's gender typical for the majority of their lives, his or her life, and then suddenly he or she comes out and says, you know, I'm, I'm actually a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. Abigail Schreier is a big voice who has written on this quite a bit. She has a book that's entitled Irreversible Damage, where she focuses on this category. And you have to realize, I mean, in the year 2007 in the United States, the entire country, there was one gender identity clinic in the whole country, right? Today, there are well over 300 gender identity clinics in the United States. And so this is very rapidly expanding and growing. This particular category comprises a large number of cases that are occurring. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why countries in Europe, including Sweden and others, very liberal countries, are actually starting to impose very swift and strong regulations on the transitioning of young people and the vetting of gender dysphoric cases, precisely because they see how fast these cases are growing statistically. 
Michael Bailey and Ray Blanchard, uh, Blanchard, that's Blanchard, that's a typo, sorry. They describe it as follows. Um, they say the subculture that fosters rapid onset gender dysphoria appears to share aspects with cults. These aspects include expectation of absolute ideological agreement, use of very specific jargon, thinking of the world as us versus them, even more than typical adolescents do, and encouragement to cut off ties with family and friends who are not with the program. It also has uncanny similarities to a very harmful epidemic that occurred a generation ago, the epidemic of false recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse and the associated epidemic of multiple personality disorder. One of the things that you find with young people who are going through this, and some of them by young people, it's a loose category. I mean, even people in their 20s and sometimes early 30s and stuff is when they're going through this rapid onset gender dysphoria experience is that they will reimagine their own history. They'll reimagine their own childhood. They'll construct an entire fantasy around who they've been, what they've gone through. And it can be extremely traumatizing for families who are dealing with this because they're trying to have a relationship with their sons. They're trying to have a relationship with their daughters. They're trying to rein it in. And yet those people are so brainwashed by the social context in which they're participating, by their friend networks, by society that is doing nothing but encouraging them and praising them, that it becomes this intractable conflict almost overnight where a mother can't even have conversations with her son or daughter, where a father cannot speak to his son or daughter, where siblings are cut off. I mean, these things are extremely, extremely tragic. And I know of situations like this that have played out and your heart just goes out to these families. Um, you know, just, just how could that, that we have a society that has put young people in this position to express such extreme forms of dysfunction and to take it to a point where they begin to cut off the most meaningful relationships that they have in their lives. Medical treatments, again, uh, there, there are a few sort of broad categories of medical treatments when we talk about trans transgenderism. Um, and they begin at adolescence and they continue through adulthood. Uh, these three forms of medical interventions are deployed in support of transitioning individuals, broadly speaking. The first, as we mentioned, is puberty suppression, which will begin in, for children at young ages, sometimes as young as nine or 10. Uh, then you have cross-sex hormone therapy, which will be the introduction of the cross-sex hormone, which will continue for a number of years. And then you have the final step, which is sex change surgery or sex reassignment surgery, um, each intervention carries side effects and is controversial for different reasons. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about those here and we'll walk through those, um, you know, slide one by one. So puberty suppression, when we talk about sort of adolescent intervention, it is an adolescent intervention. It's typically administered at the pre or early pubertal stage. It's around nine to 13 years of age. If a child hasn't gone through puberty or is just starting, that's when they'll start introducing puberty suppression. Traditionally, the medicines that are being prescribed for puberty suppression were used for cases of precocious puberty. And so if you had, let's say, a young girl or young boy that's six or seven years old that starts going through puberty, puberty suppressing medications were used to delay puberty such that it would occur at a more natural age. And so they would use it temporarily for a few years, and then they would remove it so that the child could then go through puberty at a more normal age, as opposed to its, its emergence at a very young age. 
the use of puberty suppressing medications in cases of gender dysphoria is not approved by the FDA. So major medical associations have not approved this as an official way to treat gender dysphoria. It is considered an off-label treatment, which means that it's up to the discretion of the physician, but cannot be marketed as a treatment for gender dysphoria. Okay. No clinical trials show that it is safe or effective. Major side effect for girls is infertility. And it's a rather common one, especially if they go directly from puberty suppression to hormone therapy, it is almost always the case that infertility will follow. So that's a major, major side effect for, for girls. Uh, a, a side effect that is common for both boys and girls is low bone mineral density. So when it comes to your bone density development, the vast majority, like the majority of your bone density development, or rather a really significant part of that development occurs through puberty and the events of puberty. Puberty suppression, sustained puberty suppression in the way that transgenderism and affirmative therapy uh, actually promotes and does it, right? So when we're talking about the medicalizing of children from puberty suppression to hormone therapy, it completely stifles bone density development and in fact flattens it out. And so you have people who grow up with low bone mineral density. And so they have a deficit in their skeletal mass. And it was surprisingly covered by the New York Times. The New York Times has been very, very pro-transgenderism. This was like one of the, one of the rare exceptions to the rule where they at least had to acknowledge that this is a reality. So um, brittle bones, uh, you know, osteoporosis, uh, other just, you know, easy fractures at younger ages because their bone, bone density never really came into fullness because of the way that puberty suppression was introduced at such a young age. There are other side effects as well when it comes to cognition, brain maturation, even voice patterns, et cetera. There, there are tons of side effects. What's, what's really astonishing about puberty suppression is that it is frequently described by trans activists and by medical practitioners that promote transgenderism as something that in fact has few to no side effects and carries no side effects. And that's really, you know, that's, that's sort of the medical malpractice element of this all is how, how many of these side effects are dismissed, sidelined, or just treated as non-existent, right? They're just sort of written off. The FDA itself found a plausible association between this particular use of puberty suppression and pseudotumor cerebri. So even when it comes to certain forms of like tumors and other side effects, again, they, they've, they've all been reported. And there are many studies that talk about this now in certain cases. With hormone therapy, therapy uh, it's, it's really this stage that precedes surgical intervention. And so if you have an adult that begins transitioning, that person will have often, by that point, already gone through puberty, but they'll start with hormone therapy. Uh, others, if you're talking about adolescence, that's where you begin with puberty suppression and you transition to hormone therapy. There are many, many side effects to hormone therapy. Uh, there's a link between cross-sex hormone use and transsexual women and an increase in vascular side effects such as stroke, venous uh, thromboembolism, VTE, that is the formation of venous blood clots. Um, 
after an average of 10 years of cross-sex hormone therapy, a substantial number of transsexual women suffered from osteoporosis at the lumbar spine and distal arm, and 12% of transsexual women experienced thromboembolic and or other cardiovascular events during hormone treatment, possibly related to older age, estrogen treatment, and lifestyle factors. And so again, there is a section in the paper where we detail a lot of these side effects. There are many research papers now that talk about them in detail. Um, So if people are interested in this topic, they can find many of them. But again, the reality is that hormone therapy does come with side effects as well. Many side effects. How do do all these add advocates, um, you know, uh, defend all this? Do they say that these are necessary harms for the greater good, or these are just in a minority of cases? Yeah. You know, if we were to yeah, push well, yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you, if you actually check out sort of trans forums, things like that, you will find some people there who will be very explicit about everything that they've gone through. Very explicit. And some of them will talk about, you know, the regular hospitalization and some of the side effects can be quite disgusting and sad. I mean, you read it and you just say, oh my God, like it's very horrible to read some of the things that these people have gone through. But what they'll say is that it's all worth it, Mm. right? In spite of all of those side effects, in spite of some of these people will say, I almost died. Like I thought I was going to die and yet it was all worth it. And so these stories are presented almost as a badge of honor. Sometimes these stories are even valorized, right? Like the medical complication part of it isn't something that ends up being a deterrent. Sometimes it's, you know, part of the reason, right? Part of the motivation, right? I'm already this oppressed victim. And the only way I can extricate myself from my oppressed status is to embark on this very difficult and arduous path. And it is only by coming out through this path and undertaking it that I'll ever be able to find myself, right? And so, you know, the story itself looms over these these particularities, which are almost looked at as just, you know, as either part of the program and aspects of it to be embraced or alternatively as, as, you know, the fixation or focus on this is, is a transphobic tool. It's a transphobic tactic, right? It's a tactic that's being leveraged by, you know, the oppressiveness of cis individuals, the hegemony uh, of the cis world that we live in, right? So again, many of these narratives can be quite powerful in the minds of people, even those who are not transgender, but nevertheless support all of these things. Now, the final step in the process is surgery, surgical intervention. And you have here top and bottom surgeries, and that's typically what they're referred to as. For men, it's, you know, actually doing some form of breast augmentation so that they have um, chests that appear that way. For women, it's a double mastectomy. And then you have bottom surgeries as well. Bottom surgeries obviously being more common for men, but for women, I mean, you'll even have hysterectomies or their ovaries removed. I mean, really, really significant medical operations that end up occurring in the name of transgender affirmation. Um, these surgeries are by far the most most complex, the most ridden with side effects and you know medical entailments. Um, a Swedish study found substantial, substantially higher rates of overall mortality, death from cardiovascular disease for those who had gone through sex change surgeries versus the healthy control population. It remains extremely complicated, right? Many tragic stories. 
the psychological impacts of every single medical approach is pretty severe. One of the things that you have across all categories of transgender quote unquote individuals is the very high rate of suicide, reported suicidality, and then the actual acting on suicide, even for those who have gone. In fact, one of the things that they found is that hormone therapy, sex change surgery is all these things don't actually reduce the occurrences of suicide. So suicide isn't necessarily mitigated or meaningfully attenuated as a result of these medical transitions and these medical interventions. And the trans argument against that is to say, well, that's because our society is so transphobic, right? Like the affirming of these people isn't just through medical intervention, it's by providing them a social and cultural context in which they are fully supported and they can live fully themselves and not like live day to day in such an oppressive state. Um, one of the things, one of the complications that we have as a community right, is that, well, you know, that part of the reason that you do have this sort of psychological impact, one for rapid onset cases, you have very early cases of regret, right? And you have regret in all of these cases, right? Even for children, things like that. So the regret and desistance stories can be quite traumatic to read about. For the autogynephilic cases, you have a lot of anxiety, depression that can come about as a result of not, like part of the reason is, as we said, it's, it's this outgoing fetish. And part of the motivation for surgeries is that some of these men do fantasize about being in sexual relationships with women as women or being in sexual relationships with men as women and being penetrated as a female. Now, what happens is once these people have transitioned, it's very difficult for them to actually find someone who's going to be in an intimate relationship with them. And so one of the things that's happened in recent years is that there's this huge discussion that's emerged in tra transgender spaces about genital preferencing and how genital preferencing is in fact a form of bigotry. Right? So if you have genital preferencing when it comes to your relationships and the type of people you want to date or the people you want to have an intimate relationship with, that's actually a function of your own hatred and bigotry, as opposed to something that is really more inclusive and healthy, which should be like getting rid of those genital preferencing. Nevertheless, you have a lot of people who struggle with acceptance, because I think one of the things that's happened is that you have this image of transgenderism um, through the famous figures who have gone through it. So, you know, people may have an image of transgenderism as represented by the experience of someone like Bruce Jenner moving to Caitlyn Jenner. But those are people that have a ton of funding. They have means. They can go through very complex um, plastic surgery. And so when those people present more convincingly as women, they are really the exception. A lot of people who go through this, nevertheless, end up looking like, you know, they're not convincingly female, but they're not really male. And so it's very difficult for them to get accepted in social spaces. They, they end up, many of them sort of retreat from the public square. They spend, they spend time at home. They're sort of embarrassed and ashamed to show their faces because they're just, they're, they, they end up looking so strange to people and they get stared at and you know, 
very few people that they can build relationships or friendships or anything. The, the only friendships they have left are these forums where you have trans forums and everybody encouraging you and telling you you did the right thing. And so it can be an extremely alienating experience. And one of the reasons this is complicated for us as Muslims is that you do have a growing number of cases, especially over the past two years, of male adults who have transitioned medically and gone through surgeries who are contacting Masajid in the West saying, I want to convert to Islam and wear niqab. And what's interesting about those cases is that they foreground their interest in participating as a woman in the Muslim community, where they say, I want to wear niqab, I want to be a demurred Muslim sister. And that is almost the priority for them. They want to accept Islam, they want to do that. But they're not even asking questions about Tawheed, or Risala, or the Akhirah, or the Quran, or Iman. There's no Islam in their framework when it comes to their interest in Islam. What's really interesting to them is the possibility and prospect of being an accepted woman. Because once they wear the niqab, they're just like any other woman that's in the community and they can come in and they're not going to stand out, right? This person's not going to stand out because I mean, who's, who's going to go and interrogate and look, right? So while society has sort of rejected them and rejected their experiences and treats them with, you know, treats them at arm's length, here's a possibility for me to now be accepted in a space where I'm actually not only looked at like a normal member, but I'm actually looked at as a very pious person. Right? And so that type of acceptance is now something that we're seeing more and more transgendered persons, right? Like men who have gone through this transition to be women uh, seeking, and they're coming to Muslim communities and they're coming to masjids looking for that experience. And some of them just show up, some of them just show up, right? Like they just, they come to the masjid and you, you suddenly have this, this individual who hasn't been there before and is wearing the niqab and all that. But, you know, there are indications that you're not just dealing with a biological female or someone that really has any Islamic background or knowledge of Islam, but now is, is starting to participate in your community. And you're saying, okay, well, what do we do about this person as a community? Like, how do we manage this situation? Because, you know, we don't want to be like trans affirmative, quote unquote, but we also don't want to tell somebody that they can't be Muslim. Right? Like, how do we vet this out? How do we make sure that this person is actually interested in salvation and what Islam has to provide as a system of beliefs and values, and not just somebody who's looking at Islam as sort of a salve or a bomb for their, uh, for their uh, sexual and gender dysfunction? So that's, that's transgenderism overall. So this will take us into our last section here on Islam and transgenderism. And now we start sort of examining the question of, well, what does the Sharia have to say? What does the Sharia have to say? So returning back to this question of, um, let me, sorry, move this real quick. So what does Islam have to say about gender? And this is a question we've probably brought up now, I think two times. We've had two slides up till now on sort of gender ontology and then Islam and how Islam conceives of gender. I think it's important to keep returning to this question because as I said, it's such a seminal piece of our overall framework as Muslims. So revelation itself, Quran and Sunnah, frequently speak to us all, men and women, with guidance and instruction that is not distinguished by gender. And so even in the Quran, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses uh, 
the jama' jama' mudhakkar, right? When it's the male plural, ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, things like that, or mu'mineen, and things, when, when that is inclusive of everybody, men and women, right? The masculine plural encompasses both men and women. And frequently we have guidance that is provided to all of us, even ya ayyuhannas, oh mankind, things like that, that we collectively share as human beings, prayer, fasting, being pious, trying to maintain taqwa, avoiding sins, tawbah, repentance, seeking forgiveness, istighfar. These are things for, that apply to every single Muslim, male or female. Nevertheless, as we mentioned previously, much revelatory instruction is in fact differentiated by gender. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation of men and women is mentioned in the Quran as one of his glorious ayat. And we mentioned that verse from Surah Ar-Rum, that min ayatihi, from his signs, his glorious signs, is that he created us as men and women. Gender-specific guidance often reflects physiological differences. So our phenotypes are different. We have physiological differences and we have rulings that relate to them. So the beard, for instance, for men, hijab for women, rulings on hayd, so menstruation, and the specifics of what is permitted and not permitted in those cases, right? All of those things directly tie to our differences. And those are biological differences that we have. In addition to that, gender-specific guidance is frequently, almost always, in keeping with normative behavioral differences. So it doesn't limit those differences to merely the biological, but rather it affirms the fact that men and women actually participate in society and live in the world differently. And they live in the world differently, not simply because they have socially constructed, they're living in societies that is socially constructed for them, differentiated roles, but rather because their differences extend beyond the bio biological and include the behavioral and social. Men and women are simply different in myriad ways. And the Sharia not only affirms that, but in many cases it accentuates gender difference. It promotes a life of feminine and masculine virtue. And, and it's really profound when you think about it in that in Islam, men and women are not pigeonholed into very narrow, narrow stereotypes, right? It's not as if a man simply has to be this or a woman has to be that. It recognizes that there's variability there, but it also recognizes that there's a distinctiveness to masculinity and femininity. And it doesn't deny that either. Gender really matters. It really does matter. And one of the problems that we have is that our own schema of gender as Muslims doesn't, cannot be easily situated into contemporary gender theory, nor can it easily be reconcilable with the way in which people speak about gender, even gender essentialists, right? If you follow someone like Deborah So and others, right? There may be many areas where you say, okay, we can find affinity with some of what these people are saying. But in many cases, if you were to take a step back and you talk about what a faithful practicing Muslim is supposed to live like, we might say something like a practicing Muslim is presumptively going to be gender non-conforming in many ways, because he or she is going to live in ways that do not conform to the social expectations of the societies that they're in. If you look, for instance, at social expectations of how women are supposed to dress, Right? In societies like ours, women, the common dress for women is promiscuous, right? Even sort of cold weather clothing is frequently designed for women to accentuate the features of their body. 
right? That's a prohibited way of dressing for Muslim women. They're supposed to dress in ways that are loose and not form-fitting and all of that. And so you're now dressing in a way that's very uncommon in your society for women to dress. And in fact, there may be some clothes that you can only find in like the men's section of a clothing store because you just want like a loose shirt or something like that. And you can't even find those articles of clothing in the women's section of some of the stores and department stores that you'll walk into, right? And so you end up being somebody that doesn't conform to many social expectations of society that are around you. Likewise for men. If you think about certain social expectations that people have for men, we'd say no, like men are actually expected in the Sharia to behave in certain ways, to maintain and uphold certain duties and responsibilities, right? Even when it comes to, for instance, uh, the responsibilities that we have towards our parents, right? Contemporary society, especially in the West, doesn't see that as a presumptive responsibility that any child should have to take on. Moreover, many of them can actually look at that as, as something that's unbecoming, right? Like, you know, mama's boy or something like that. People crack jokes about it. The, an adult may have a relationship with his parents, but he's not somebody who look, who's like duty bound to them in the way that the Sharia demands of it. And so in many cases, we're doing things that are socially differentiated from the way that society is expecting us to live. And so we're, we're sort of naturally going to be different, especially if we take the Sharia seriously. Nevertheless, that difference isn't something that's like totally plastic, totally liquid, right? Is just, you know, a constructed artifact of a world in which, you know, gender itself can be, you know, any different shape or variety. Like that's, that's not our discourse and that's not our sort of wedge or <laughs> conceptualization of gender either. And so, you know, we, we have to sort of approach this topic in a way that, that sort of affirms gender in its fullness, but nevertheless recognizes that the way we speak of and consider and live and think of gender has to be different from public society today. Now, transitioning from there to questions of transgenderism, how have the fuqaha, how have the jurists ruled on questions of sex change surgeries, right? Um, the earliest rulings come about in the mid 20th century. I think the earliest was in fact in the 1960s. And we'll come back to that. Um, one of the first and arguably perhaps the first was from Sheikh Al-Azhar Jad Al-Haq or Gad Al-Haq, um, Rahimahullah, who died in uh, 1996, 1417. He wrote about sex change surgeries in 1981 in response to a question that was received from the Malaysian Center for Islamic Research. As part of his response, the Sheikh permitted corrective surgeries for hidden se sexual organs but he explicitly forbade sex changes, explicitly forbade sex changes. But he said, hey, if there are certain sexual um, disorders that need to be corrected, or if there are corrective surgeries that need to be um, supported, then it's permissible. And you see him talking about the various ahadith tied to um, seeking out treatment, tadawu, things like that, right? You'll see a lot of these ahadith come up um, when, when it relates to this particular topic. One year later, in Azhar, the uh, famous at Azhar University, the famous Sayyid Sali incident occurred. And I don't recall all of the details all offhand, but what you had was a student um, in Al Azhar University whose name was Sayyid, and he transitioned to Sally. I believe he even got surgery done. Um, uh, I'd have to go back and double check. 
but he came out as Sally. And, you know, there, there was sort of a question of, okay, what do we do with the student that wants to be participate in the university as a woman, right? He was kicked out of us um, when this happened. Um, but it received a lot of publicity and a lot of news. And this question of Sayyid Sally went to Muhammad Sayyid Al-Tantawi, who at that time was the Sheikh Al-Azhar. So he was the successor of Jad al-Haq. And he ruled in 1988 in keeping with Jad al-Haq. And one of the things that's interesting about his fatwa, and it's actually almost identical to Jad al-Haq's fatwa, even in terminology, but he didn't address the question of psychological hermaphroditism, which was the question he received. Right? That was part of the question, but he didn't address that part of it. And because he didn't address that part of it, people, there are some people who said he essentially punted on the question of whether you know, hermaphroditism could be psychological. Others said his silence indicates his support. Others said his silence indicates that he was not comfortable with it in prohibition. And so you have multiple sides that appealed to Tantawi's fatwa. Um, Recent, in recent years, you have people that have recast the fatwa of Atantawi as actually having endorsed sex change surgeries, although that's not there in his fatwa at all, especially if you go back to the original writings. And certainly even in Western academia, you can see some good representations of it that have faithfully transmitted what he said that basically state in no uncertain terms that he did not in fact endorse sex change surgeries. Um, you know, you see him saying that, you know, this question of, you know, whether or not something should be permitted, like corrective surgeries, where he's focused, he says, this is this is a medical issue of corrective surgeries, and a doctor should be consulted on that, right? But when it comes to trying to change something, that's prohibited. And he refers back to the notion of or changing the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In 1989, the Muslim World League's Fiqh Academy discusses sex change surgeries and they, they declare it prohibited, except for the cases of the anatomically ambiguous intersex person. So the khuntha al-mushkil. The khuntha al-mushkil can get a surgery, right, to a corrective surgery, right, based on sort of their sexual organs, but otherwise it is prohibited. More recent fatwa authored, uh, a more recent fatwa authored in 2011 by Mufti Zain al-Islam Qasmi, uh, the Vice Mufti of Darul Ulum uh, Deoband, concurs with the Muslim World League's fatwa. And in fact, Mufti Qasmi includes a lot of detail where he refutes those who permit it. And so he refutes, you know, if people are going to appeal to, let's say, Qawad al um, the axioms of fiqh. And they're going to say, uh, right, that necessity, uh, situations of necessity permit um, things that are otherwise prohibited, right, which is an axiom that relates to, let's say, someone's starving, they're in the middle of the desert, and the only thing that they can, you know, consume is wine or swine meat or something like that, they'd say, well, it's permissive permissible in that particular situation to the extent that it's needed to survive, right, you, you have those that's, that's sort of an axiom in fiqh that relates to that situation. And he talks about how if people begin employing these types of things in this scenario, here's why it's inapplicable. Here's why it's inapplicable, right? The Indonesian Muslim Council, their Majlis Ulama of Indonesia, or the MUI, issued a fatwa on the local Wadiya community. And the Wadiya community is a, is a community of biological men who impersonate women. And some of them, in fact, are quite popular. There was one figure... Um, 
who uh, I believe used to wear hijab, became like a very popular news correspondent, and I think even had a talk show, apparently uh, at some point became very religious, started wearing niqab, stopped going on TV, and became more reclusive. Um, but they, they issued a fatwa on the local wariya community, and they said that being a wariya is impermissible. They urged the government to disband the wariya organizations that existed in Indonesia. And so they came out very clear on that. And I think all of these fatwa are important. Darul Ulum Deoband, right? And certainly the fatwa from the subcontinent are all occurring in social spaces where gender nonconforming behavior is common. You do have the hijra community there, which are men that impersonate women. So you do have that there. And likewise in Indonesia, where the wariya community has lived for a long time, you have fatwa and fiqh that is very strident and non-negotiable or uncompromising on this. And so we're not talking about people who are totally disconnected from this as a social reality, but in fact, do observe this in their own societies. And nevertheless, they're making fatwa that hold on to the prohibition of deliberate impersonations. Now, Shiism ends up taking on a different trajectory altogether. Uh, you have a very influential work by Ali Akbar Siyasi, which enunciates a dual conception of human identity that includes both sort of bedaniyat, the anatomy, and like your bedan, right, your body, and then nafsaniyat, your feelings, your thoughts. And so you're sort of dichotomizing these two things as distinct. And that work plays a very, very big role in the entire, what, what sort of comes about vis-a-vis -vis transgenderism in Iran. Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, you know, sort of the grand sheikh of Iran for so long, uh, issues a ruling of permission in 1967. I have read different stories associated with this that, you know, initially he was uncomfortable with this particular situation or scenario and he ruled against it, but then he met a sort of man who had, you know, was dressed as a woman and all this, and it sort of changed his mind. Allah knows best. I don't know how reliable some of those stories are, but nevertheless, his fatawa uh, permission is really quite clear in his writings. And his ruling and subsequent conception of it appears to support gender essentialism nevertheless. And so, again, I'm not sort of a Shi'a scholar or anything, but my understanding of the way that sort of Khomeini and the, the fatawa on this operate is that you sort of have the lahir, right? The bedan, who you are on the outside. And then you have the batin or the nafsaniyat, who you are on the inside. And what they do is that they privilege the inside, the batin over the lahir. They say the batin is who you are. Now in this reading of human beings, in this sort of anthropology, this conception of what it means to be a human being, if a person, let's say your batin, is female, but your lawhead is male, it would be impermissible not to get the surgery. Because not getting it would be the equivalent of a woman going into male spaces. So you would have to get it. And at that point, that's who you are for the rest of your life. There's, this isn't, there's no fluidity. There's no, oh, we're just doing social transitioning. There's, it's, it's you're a male or a female. You're one or the other, but what is determinative in making that evaluation is who you are on the inside, not who you are on the outside. Okay. 
1987, the Iranian Ministry of Justice, in response to a query from the Legal Medicine, Medicine Organization of Iran, asserted that same-sex same sex or sex change surgery, rather, sex, sex change surgery was religiously permissible. And so in 1987, the surgeries themselves became permissible in the country of Iran, citing Khomeini's fatwa. Uh, annually, there are about, oh, somewhere around 4,000 sex change surgeries in Iran, one of the highest in the world. For a number of years, they've, they've actually conducted more sex change surgeries than any other country in the world. Um, and so this is, this, is, uh, this is what's going on there, which is a very, very tr different trajectory than Sunnism, obviously. The matter, nevertheless, I'll say that the matter remains controversial among some Shia jurists. You do see some that write, I believe, Ayatollah Subhani, Jafar Subhani, if I'm not mistaken, among others who say that Khomeini's fatwa has been misrepresented. Um, again, Allah knows best. I'm not sure that I find that terribly persuasive, especially if you go back to his original writings. But nevertheless, that's an argument that's been made where they say he was talking about the Khunta and he was talking about the sort of hermaphrodite and the physiological ambiguous person not just a person who wants to impersonate and transition in this manner. Um, others obviously are not as tethered to Khomeini himself and view it as bad fiqh and simply disagree with his fatwa overall. Um, so there's some controversy within Shiism on, on the issue among jurists. Opponents of sex change surgery, which obviously in Sunniism is virtually a consensus, root their positions in the following. They talk about a verse in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes changing Allah's creation. And I will have them change the creation of Allah. This is, this is something that shaitan vows. He vows to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he's going to make human beings change the creation of Allah. So it's described as a satanic act. You have a hadith prohibiting mutilation of the human body, mutla. You also have the hadith that we've mentioned, which is in all the big books in Muttafaqade, which is the prohibiting the, uh, the deliberate imitation of the opposite sex. The fact that gender transition surgeries are fraught with scientific uncertainty regarding the long-term effects and that anecdotal evidence suggests that they often do not bring notable satisfaction to patients. Um, that also is, tends to factor in as well. Many of them will also add additionally the fact that a actual sex change, a full sort of ontological one is, is impossible. There is no way to sort of make a man, a woman, or vice versa. Um, but these are all things that will come up in their fatah. So the ruling on, is it halal or haram? And uh, the picture here, it says fiqh Hanafi. That's just what I found. It's just fiqh, right? So in any event, um, the uh, I consulted as part of this paper with a number of different scholars, and the steady conclusion I was provided was impermissibility. In fact, I couldn't find anyone that would support anything else. And they brought up a number of things. Obviously, the ayah of the Quran around taghir, taghir. So it should be a why there, but taghir khalq Allah, changing the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the prohibition around that. And the hadith cursing those who change the creation of Allah, which is also a hadith the Prophet The hadith that we mentioned pre previously of mutilation of the human body. Hadith prohibiting the imitation of the opposite gender, opposite sex, strengthened by the fact that the Sharia acknowledges and accommodates those who are congenitally non-conforming. So people who have walked differently or speech, right? The muhannathin that we talked about, but does so while upholding the reality of their underlying sex. It doesn't treat those men as if they're women. Right? It, it's, 
it always upholds the reality that these are men. Okay? And the conceptual and ontological impossibility of a true and complete sex change further betresses this conclusion. And so not just sex change surgeries, but social transitioning, hormone therapy, all of this would fall under the prohibition ruling. I, I think when you were when you were talking about the ambiguous kuntha, I think yep. you alluded to uh, a minority opinion amongst the shafis that um, you'll have to make a single permanent selection yep. uh, of gender. Would that exclude transition or would that include so how do we understand gender selection according to that minority opinion will it just be well, well that minority a declarative opinion. statement or yeah. well we're talking about pre-modern fatawa so we're not talking about anything that where medical transitioning was even in the picture right yeah um, and we're, we're talking about the situation where you have a junta that is down the line ambiguous, which, as we mentioned, is a very rare case where someone is even you know, genetically ambiguous, mm. physiologically in every which way is not, you know, you're talking about somebody who is not unambiguously male or female. There's no specific indication, right? Voice, hair, there's just nothing that we can look at and say, okay, mm. this is more male or this is a person who's more female. In that situation, they would say, hey, you make a selection and then you live according to that. Um, you know, now for the junta, right? Many of the scholars permitted surgeries, especially modern councils, they permit like someone who's a hermaphrodite who has both biological organs, they would say, hey, they can remove the one that's superfluous, because most cases of the junta are biologically unambiguous, right? We're not talking about people who are, are like so ambiguous that we actually cannot find out what gender that person is, either dominantly or as a matter of fact, right? These are simply disorders or, um, you know, additional appendages and things like that that can be rectified through some corrective surgery. And so, that's, that seems to be where the most fifth councils are. In terms of someone who's like down the line ambiguous and like now can, if that person makes a choice, can they go through a home? Allah knows best. I mean, that's, again, that's not really what that fatwa was talking about. It's just, hey, you're going to make a choice and live according to that for the purpose of the sharia. And it's, it's one view. The majority of scholars say, no, like you just live ambiguously. And we just, we take a reserved position towards you as a junta individual where we're generally conservative because we don't know. And this is how we're going to do Salah for you. And this is how we're going to do everything else for you. So Allah knows best. So, so when you were talking about, you know, I mean, on this slide where we are right now, um, yeah. is it haram to, or halal to transition, I guess you're not, you're not talking about that ex exceptional case of yeah. biological well, ambiguity, but rather yeah. what we're pretty much dealing with these days of, you know, inner feelings and whatnot. Yeah, of course. Well, the biological ambiguity isn't even, I mean, I don't even know if you would describe it as a transition necessarily. Mm. Um, all, we're, all we're doing is saying that we have somebody that is, you know, just so indeterminate, right? Mm. So indeterminate, which again, that's like 0. 0.000, like it's a very rare case if you, if you sort of read up the medical research on such, like such persons exist, but they are even like they're they're rare, even according to the standards of disorders of sexual development. It's like 0. 0.000 some percent right and so for that particular like rarefied person it's like okay well if like if that person should probably consult a scholar and see whether that scholar is willing to endorse the position of imam shafi and then what are the entailments of that fatwa for today i don't know i haven't seen like a really big discussion on that 
simply because that's a use case that is like so unbelievably rare that like in all of humanity right now, like how many people are we really talking about? Yeah. So, so in any event, this is, this is the overall ruling itself. And, you know, just, just concluding with a couple of concluding remarks here. Um, in recent years, the transgender debate has become a culture war issue. And school curricula, movies, and other media, politicians, and more are deeply enmeshed in this public debate. And one of the reasons that this is especially problematic for us in the United States is that, you know, most Muslims are predisposed to liberal politics, and many of them far-left politics. And far-left politics are fully uh, affirmative therapy advocates. They are on the bleeding edge of transgender advocacy, and that's where virtually all Muslim um, political actors are certainly where the majority, vast majority of Muslim civil rights organizations are as well, which means, you know, we've actually had situations where many of these organizations and institutions are getting behind not only transgenderism as a broad civic program to affirm a subset of political and civic rights, but even childhood transgenderism and things like that, which is, which is getting supported by these people, uh, which just shows how radical things have gotten for us as a community here. Transcritical groups focus on a few pet issues. So female sports, childhood transitioning, bathroom use, pronoun protocols. There's a couple of issues that they focus on, but they're not fundamentally opposed to transgenderism overall. So even though these groups are described as transphobic or transcritical, they actually don't share overlap with us when it comes to our underlying ontology let alone our more fundamental commitments as believers. And so there are very few groups in which we're gonna find really easy, um, easy relationships and solidarity with. Uh, gender confusion is increasing by the day, especially among the young. Um, you know, I believe it was Sweden, um, although it was somewhere in Europe, maybe in Switzerland, something like that, where they said 4,400% rise in young girls expressing gender dysphoria at gender clinics. Um, those, those numbers are, again, increasing a lot by the day. And so um, that's, that's a real problem. Liberal groups have assimilated this topic often in its most extreme form into their platform as a matter of creed. It really is athida for many modern liberals. And so extreme is the current position in American liberalism that it stands out as radical, even when judged against the positions of liberal groups in Europe. And by Europe, I even include the UK in this. I mean, the UK has reined this in um, not a whole lot, but they reined it in a little bit more than the United States, which has, which continues to push the envelope further and further here. Muslims arrive at this topic, as I mentioned, from an oblique angle, having to tussle with questions of both gender and gender nonconformity. And it's a tough issue for Muslims, one, because they struggle with questions of gender and because gender neutrality is so appealing to Muslims, young and old, and Muslims have a really tough time with their own tradition and what it has to say about gender. And then, you know, gender nonconformity is derivative of that. So how do you, how do you sort of address this in a really serious way without really maintaining that? So you, you have a lot, of, a lot of challenges there overall as a community that we're dealing with. Um, the final note here is that the topic is not going away anytime soon. The Muslims will have to remain vigilant as they get desensitized to its pro proliferation while working harder to shield their youth. And by that, I mean, that's, that's happening as we speak. If you work in corporate spaces, especially in large corporations, you're going to have trans coworkers. Um, as I said, we already have masajid that are increasingly being approached by trans individuals who want to convert. We have young people who are experiencing very extreme and strong or severe forms of gender dysphoria. Um, 
this this is happening. This is actually happening, right? And uh, as Muslims, we really have to figure out how we can discuss this topic without losing our bearings. Because what happens is that, you know, initially with any social current like this is that initially people sort of chafe at it, they react to it, um, they're very cynical and derisive. Uh, there's still a social space where people can sort of re- rely on their instinctual revulsion to it. And that instinct, that instinctive or instinctive revulsion to the topic is something that sort of carries people for a number of years. After that, the dialogue changes, the media representation changes, the culture changes. And a lot of those things that you could rely on previously become unreliable. And so those things end up becoming in flux. And that's kind of where we are because you're getting so many representations. You're getting inundated by this so much that suddenly like you become tired of it, right? You're sort of demoralized. You concede to sort of the social situation in front of you. And then what you have is a shifting of the Overton window where certain words become prohibited, right? certain descriptions, you know, things that previously were just used to describe people are now looked at as offensive, are looked at as profane, are looked at as slurs. Um, And so now your entire dialogue has to adjust what becomes acceptable and socially unacceptable. You know, there are strong lines that are put down that way. And in fact, one of the things that I found is that with Muslims overall is in talking about these topics, so many of them foreground their own anxieties with how they're going to be regarded or viewed. Right? Like I'm going to be viewed as a conservative or no, that's that, you know, that's Matt Walsh or this person or that, but like they, they almost cannot think of these issues in a way that's independent from the political environment that we find ourselves in. They allow their political and social and cultural context to overdetermine their view of themselves and the type of people that they want to be. And because of that, like, you know, the, the, the conflict isn't merely about, you know, a subset of people who are experiencing gender confusion, but it's also about the type of person I want to be, my identity, who I belong with, right? How I'm going to be viewed by others, whether or not I'm a good person, right? All of those things come to take on very, very significant and important parts of the dialogue and the debate. And it's it's a challenging issue precisely because now what you're really encouraging or asking from people is a taller ask, right? It's a very tall order because now people are being asked not merely to maintain some like fiqhi view or some view of halal or haram, but we're asking people to take on something that carries with it moral connotations. And that's, that's, always, that's always very difficult. So... That's that's my presentation um, that I had for today. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but let's let's sort of open up to see if you have any questions. Should I stop sharing maybe for the Q&A? That work? Um, that, well, I mean, yeah, you, 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 you could keep you could keep the screen off if you like or stop sharing, uh, just in case you may have to go back to the slide. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say about uh, for that uh, very informative presentation. I'm sure, inshallah, many of our listeners will find it to be very educational and helpful in enabling them to engage in these discussions in a much more informed manner, especially via an Islamic paradigm. Um, now, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Mubin, you know, many Muslims flock to listen to many non-Muslims on the right side of the political spectrum in order to 
benefit from their talking points on a variety of issues, including transgenderism. And, you know, this could be driven by a lack of quality of resources being provided by Muslims. And, well, that's something we're trying to change today. But, you know, and it's not necessarily due to any bad intentions. Well, in light of this, I'd like to ask you two questions. You know, first, have you observed any notable problems that Muslims have fallen into as they borrow and adopt the talking points from the likes of Jordan Peterson, for example, on these issues? And if so, serious ones you'd like Muslims to be wary of as they attempt to take the good and leave the bad from such speakers. And secondly, are there any good writers or speakers, even if they're not Muslims, who, despite not being as popular as a Jordan Peterson, that you'd recommend our listeners, that you'd recommend to our listeners as alternatives? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I'll say that especially in America, we don't really have a large number of Muslim sort of political conservatives, right? Oftentimes when Muslims, especially online and on social media, think of the Muslim right wing, they're thinking about Muslims who are simply, perhaps even virulently, anti-liberal, right? And they may have a particular online persona. They're, you know, they can be very aggressive and abrasive towards what they view as, you know, liberal and weak-minded Muslims, right? Like that, that's, that seems to be the ongoing combat area for a lot of Muslims. But those people don't really have their views in life informed by Jordan Peterson, not at a deep level. Some of them may support certain things Jordan Peterson says, but I don't think that they're people who are really subscribing to Jordan Peterson's views. In fact, many of them hate him. And so they're, they may even be more right-wing than someone like Jordan Peterson, right? In terms of the way that they view the world and the types of people that they have affinity with. I think Jordan Peterson, you know, and I haven't followed him in recent years. I, I think it's, so some of his transitions and developments that have happened in the last couple of years have been very unfortunate. I don't think, I think he's gone from, you know, a time where he was arguably a much more serious figure to someone who's just in the culture war, sort of, you know, he's, he's you know, um, affluent and, and monetizing his public presence much more actively. And, you know, he's sort of in that space now, you know, the Daily Wire and all that. But I think initially his opposition, and this is where I think many people perhaps misunderstood Jordan Peterson, is that many people sort of saw Jordan Peterson as the prototypical or sort of the face or symbol of trans opposition. And Jordan Peterson was never really opposed to transgenderism, right? I mean, one of the thing that he came out against was pronoun protocol being coerced. And he spoke about the specific bills and laws that were being passed in Canada that were going to force people to use particular pronouns. And he said himself, he said, I'll observe someone's preferred pronouns. I'll do it because I want to do it. And sort of as a polite person, I'll observe it. But I'm opposed to the idea of coercing. When you force speech, you undermine the principle of free speech. And for, for Jordan Peterson, free speech is sacred. Jordan Peterson in this is more of a classic liberal. He's someone who cherishes free speech as a necessary precondition to any free society. And the type of argument Jordan Peterson makes is that liberal societies are ordered around a diverse group of people 
having equal access to pursue for themselves a life of truth. And he says that that life of truth, the truth itself can never be meaningfully explored in a society that inhibits honest dialogue or tries to coerce people into speaking in certain ways. Stifling free speech undermines the pursuit of truth. And he would further that argument to say that when you limit speech, you set in place the conditions for oppression. You put in place the conditions for authoritarianism. Authoritarianism thrives for Jordan Peterson and societies that actively restrict and limit how you can speak. And so he'll bring up the memories of fascism and Nazism and all of that. And to him, those are very like evident realities and possibilities that you may not think of this today, but this is, this is the kernel from which those oppressive outcomes gain life and germinate. And so Jordan Peterson's argument is being made in the framework of classical liberalism and as someone who's trying to maintain the integrity of the liberal order. And that's the type of thing that even someone like Francis Fukuyama and others will talk about how we need to save liberalism from both the left and the right, right? What, 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 you know, when you, when you read people today talk about things like normie culture, right? The type of person that reads The Economist or, um, you know, The Atlantic, right? That sort of category of person in America. They're sort of the classic liberals who will have who will oppose certain aspects of transgenderism, right? And certainly the excesses they'll be uncomfortable with when it comes to female, female sports or childhood transitioning or bathroom use and this type of stuff. But they're not categorically opposed to transgenderism. In fact, many of them will be very supportive of the idea that an adult who transitions is someone who needs to have all of his civic rights supported, be politically represented, have legal, like legal space, right? Where, where they're legally recognized in society. And moreover, like what a moral person will do will actually provide that person all the support that they need in society. We need to adjust to the reality of trans people, right? And trans people are just like us and all of that, right? And so, you know, they don't, they don't share any underlying moral objection to the idea of transgenderism as like a concept as much as they do, like they, they as much as they have problems with specific things that are being done politically, legally, or in the name of transgenderism overall. And that, that's kind of where Jordan Peterson comes at this. I think other conservatives, um, perhaps like the Matt Walsh variety, use the pet issues to smuggle in their more deeply held objection to transgenderism overall. They recognize that they can't foreground a total or categorical objection to it because they'll be called a bigot. But if they focus on certain issues, which are perhaps public liabilities for the transgender movement as a tactic, it's more socially acceptable, it helps with their own celebrity and popularity, and it serves to undermine the transgender movement. So that's what they're trying to do as a tactical matter, right? Um, but nevertheless, I mean, what it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, one might say, okay, well, it does help their celebrity. It does help... Um, gain attention to some of the problems of the trans movement, but it also delimits the space in which people can actually object to it because now the only areas that are controversial are sort of these extreme areas, 
right? These very particular issues or scenarios and situations rather than more thoroughgoing objections, which yesterday used to be permitted in the public square. But now we're, we're past that debate. We're past that discussion. We can't even have that dialogue in an intelligent and thoughtful way because all of that's already been conceded. And so in some ways, there's an implicit, implicit set of concessions that they're making um, when they're doing that. And that's aside from the fact that I think many of these people are just very off-putting, right? <laughs> I think if I, yeah, and I say that, I mean, they, they can be very smug, self-assured. I mean, they're just unlikable figures. I mean, many of them are. And I, and I say that, you know, a lot, of a lot of politicians are, a lot of people are politically activists are like, I, I feel that way with the squad, right? Um, who a lot of people are enamored with. I'm like, a lot of these people are just so off-putting when you just listen, you know, just, you know, you roll your eyes when these people are talking. Um, but specifically on the conservative side, you see these people like, you know, Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro, they're very smug, self-assured, abrasive. I think very rarely do they say things that I think are thoughtful. I don't think, I don't think they're, they're regularly people who are um, adding to sort of enlightening our public square in any meaningful way. Uh, I think sometimes they can even come off as like just obsessed with like owning the lib culture, which is so stupid, like the libs of TikTok stuff and these types of things. So they, they're, they're in this paradoxical position where I think they in many ways can undermine genuine and good faith and thoughtful efforts to actually counteract this through their sort of public performances. And at the same time, they are profiting off of what they're doing quite heavily and do receive a fair, num fair amount of support simply because you do have a lot of conservatives in this country who feel that they can't even talk. They feel that they can't, they can't find anybody that shares their views and values. They feel like they're just getting railroaded day after day. And so it's, it's kind of a precarious and interesting situation that we have going on. Have you seen in any terms of, you know, alternatives? I mean, yeah, in terms of alternatives, there are, there are, there are. I mean, I, I, I like the National Marriage Project, Brad Wilcox. I mean, again, not everything they say is great, but a lot of the stuff that they say is quite good. So, you know, there are a lot of people that are there. Um, you know, Helen Alvarez is a writer. She doesn't really write on transgenderism, but on the family, she's really good. Mary Eberstadt has been a good voice. Um, even, frankly, the Catholic Women's Forum. Catholic Women's Forum, they have a website. I think it's person and identity, personandidentity.com. They can Google that, um, which is a pretty good website. There are a lot of good resources there. Do you, um, do you, do you feel that they also tackle the core of these issues rather oh, than? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, the Catholic Women's Forum, very, they, they even have, they have an interesting diagram like on their website about like contemporary Western sort of the, what is the, how does the contemporary West conceive of certain things and how do Christians conceive of things, right? It's like, I own my body, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, you know, sort of Catholic. I was fashioned in the image of God and I am one of God's creatures and my life is for God, et cetera, et cetera. And so they'll, they'll compare, right? They'll, 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 they'll do this on like point by point where they'll say, hey, this is sort of like the underlying assumption, like radical individualism versus my life is a duty and responsibility to others, towards God, to et cetera. So they'll do that. And there's a lot of useful stuff. Obviously, at times, the person has to be aware of Trinitarianism. But, you know, this isn't an issue where, you know, Trinitarianism is really being overloaded. And unsurprisingly, on some of these issues, we're going to find a lot more agreement with groups like them than we are with, you know, just secular humanists, right? I mean, that's, that, that shouldn't be surprising at all. So Great. 
What, what advice would you offer Muslims who have to grapple with the unfortunate reality of sending their children to public schools and whereby they are being taught and getting exposed to all this pro-transgenderism material? Yeah, well, I think, I think there are certain things Muslims can do, which will, at a minimum, it'll kick the can down the road a little, which itself right now is a bit of a win, right? So if they go to, you know, like what happened in Dearborn and what's happened in other cities, I think Minnesota, you've had this happen as well, where Muslim families show up, they show up to school board meetings, they oppose some of the changes that are taking place, whether it's the, um, the introduction of a lot of trans literature into library books, or the teaching of trans material to young children, you can show up and oppose that and maybe you'll win, um, especially because many of these school boards are unprepared for controversy, especially when that controversy is a byproduct of sort of non-white right-wing conservatives, but in fact, a religious minority that is saying that they're being oppressed and imposed upon. I think a lot of times, you know, you sort of have a competitive advantage there especially when it comes to optics and the way these things have played out. And it's better, right? Because your kids are going to these schools and they're going to be exposed to this. So why not try to limit the extent to which they're getting exposed to this, either by making sure that it doesn't get introduced in young ages, or at the very least, trying to ensure that there's some sort of opt-out option amongst young people in schools. That being said, I mean, in, the question is, how long, how long are those negotiations going to survive? Um, especially given how aggressive this transgender promotion is. I, I think Muslims need to, at this point, especially in America, but across the West, invest a lot more money in Islamic schools and alternate schools, um, such that you know Muslims who may not have a lot of money still have an option of sending their children there. So they need to be accessible spaces for Muslims who don't have a lot of money. In addition to that, homeschooling. Homeschooling, I think a lot of Muslims prematurely foreclose on the possibility of doing homeschool. But homeschooling is on the table. It's not rocket science. It's something that does take work. It's not easy, but it's certainly something that's doable. Look, our, our young people are going to schools in, in very formative years of their lives. They don't really know a whole lot about Islam, right? We're not talking about Budama who are sitting in these schools. They're not philosophers such that when they come home with these issues, we can break them down using, you know, we can, we can engage with social construction theory and performativity and all of that. Like that's not where their minds are at. Right? And they're being exposed to very confusing and complicated ideas that can completely destabilize them as individuals. And it's something that like as a Muslim, like why would you run that risk if you didn't have to? If you didn't have to, why would you run that risk? Like, uh, you know, we have, we have schools, look, I'm, I'm in the state of Maryland, many schools have already adjusted on this, where they've incorporated uh, sort of gender critical teaching in even the elementary schools in young ages. And I know of stories where, you know, a parent will tell me that his daughter or son in public school, right, we're talking about third, fourth grade, they do a session on gender, they introduce what the gender bred figure, right, the gender bred person, and they start doing that type of stuff. And by the end of the week, that son or daughter, every single like four, five, six students or friends in school are all talking weird. And they're, 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 you know, it's like the whole class is suddenly confused about this thing in just a matter of days. You know, in fact, the person I was talking to, his child wanted to be pulled out of public school and was at, literally crying 
telling his parent about this. And so these types of things can happen very quickly, especially with the way these things are being introduced, sometimes in subtle ways and other times more, more overt ways. These are young children. I mean, this is, this is really quite extreme what's going on here. And I'm not saying that, you know, sure, like the majority of children, if they get exposed to this, maybe they'll be confused for a little bit, they'll move on. Most of them aren't going to end up sort of trans themselves, but the very prospect of them growing up with a very like deep comfort level that was instilled in them at such a young age on transgenderism, and then to grow up with that as like the representative framework for understanding gender is quite, quite extreme, right? And there's, there isn't a whole lot like that. I mean, what else, what else is going to be conveyed to your child at a young age in schools that contradicts your values and beliefs as a Muslim that directly. I mean, it's really this LGBT stuff outside of that. I mean, your kid can go to school for, you know, from kindergarten to whatever, and he's going to learn very little. Like he's going to focus on literature. Maybe he'll read books or she'll read books that have controversial material. They're going to have a bunch of stuff that as kids, they're going to have to overcome, obviously dating and all these other things. But the idea that you have teachers that are now explicitly instructing this Right? And these are authority figures for children as part of like classroom protocol and as standard parts of their like classroom rubric. Like that's, that's a really, really serious thing. It's a really serious thing. And I think that some Muslim parents are being a bit naive in the idea that, oh, like, we'll just kind of have a talk with them and they come home. And like, that's like, you're, that's oftentimes like not enough, especially when you're dealing with young children who have, um, you know, that their minds are like sponges, right? And so they're impressionable, they're young, like you, you don't you don't want them, you don't want to deal with this situation unless Panama protect us. I mean, I mean so do you, have, do you have any practical tips when it comes to accommodating the pronoun preferences of transgenders, especially if there's fear of one lo- losing his job or well, I mean, I think yeah, I think I think if someone's gonna lose his job, then you really don't have a choice. Right. Like if it's going to be an HR violation to like dead name this person or to use their like biological pronoun or whatever, then there's no choice there. The choice has been removed because the alternative is losing your job. And that's going to be an HR violation in most places. It could be certainly it could be a similar violation in school settings and others. So a person has to be attentive to the reality that in many places they're probably going to have to observe observe preferred pronoun protocol, they should try to limit it, right? So just because like you have a workplace where this is required, you should try to avoid having to do it to the extent possible. So, you know, if you deal with somebody, you know, you refer to that person by his or her name, whatever name they're going by, you just use the name as much as possible because you recognize that these things aren't small. They have baked in ontological assumptions about gender. And so you try to do something to the limited extent possible. And that as a believer, you at a minimum, right? You, you recognize wrong for wrong in your heart. And that's That's the weakest of faith that a person can have. Right? Yeah, I think, I think it's important to emphasize, you know, like trying your best to minimize it as much as possible, not getting too lax and getting used to it by, you know, using the excuse, well, you know, um, I have to, you know, I, I, I might lose my job. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to get desensitized and get used to this. Yeah, like, no, it, then, like, you know, don't, don't forget that this is wrong and try your very, only when you're like squeezed into a corner, do you probably, you know, cave in if you must, yeah, but I, uh, I, do try your yeah. best to minimize interactions. Do try your best to use his actual name. Uh, do try your best. If there are 
any if there's any way you could equivocate and not actually you know literally spill out his <laughs> his, his, his preferred pronoun which you don't think uh, he's worthy of uh, having um yeah i'd say that for anything right we could get I creative mean, you know we could get creative yeah. yeah if you're working in a company that's very like pro lgbt that doesn't mean that you have to like get like rainbow stickers and put them on your laptop and you know yeah, put yeah, bumper stickers yeah. in your, like you don't have to become like an advocate for this simply because you work for a company or an organization or an institution that is pro right mm. like you kind of continue with your work you focus on being a good employee right and treating people with respect and dignity and all of that and you try to minimize the extent to which you're going to be in positions where you have to compromise your values right you try to minimize that to the extent possible and that's true for everything that's true for everything um great so, movie uh, I, just one last question for you and we're gonna let you go um you know we, we we have we have muslims out there who are struggling with gender dysphoria as you as you noted um yep. Given how far along the transgender movement is, uh, some of these people have socially transitioned, you know, getting a new name, wearing dresses, et cetera, whereas others have gone through uh, medical procedures like hormone therapy, surgeries and whatnot. How do you suggest we help work with and deal with such Muslims, given that their transitioning has already begun and in some cases can be very far along? Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to deal with these situationally. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all rule. Um, you know, for instance, I think with children, we can have a great deal more sympathy in our work with them and recognize that it's a really tough struggle for young people while trying to work them back into a place of desistance, right? Um, but also recognizing that it's a tough issue and, you know, we're not, we don't want to retrench them in that psychological problem, but we want to help them and be supportive of them as they find community with other brothers or other sisters based on who they actually are and not the problems and challenges that they're going through. Um, you know, and I'll say this, right? Like, you know, for instance, if you have a young boy, for instance, let's say, who is dealing with a severe case of gender dysphoria, and he says, you know, he loves wearing makeup, he loves wearing women's clothing, et cetera, et cetera. We try to transition him back, right? And part of that might be, okay, you know, the Prophet used to use kuhl. We're going to use kuhl, you know, for you. Um, you don't like, you know, men's clothing. Why? It's too tight, whatever. Okay, wear thobes. Like, we're going to try to find ways to figure out where you can participate in the community as a man or as a boy without trying to trigger all of your anxieties till we can kind of move you back along. Because, you know, those are still things that we can look at and say, hey, men do it, right? And like, you can still be part of the group. You can be part of our community. It's not a problem for us, right? Like you're, you're a full man, mashallah. Like Allah made you this way and it's a beautiful way that Allah has created you, but it may take time in certain situations. And I think for some youth, we can sort of work with that. I think for adults, again, it's going to be situational. I think in most cases, you're probably not going to have like a person who's gone through full medical transitions and all of that be a really visible public face of your community. I don't think that's going to happen just because it's such a, like, it's just such an in-your-face thing, right? Um, you know, again, it's not kufr. Like, the person hasn't left Islam, right? It's not shirk, right? It's not something that takes someone outside of Islam. And so, um, you know, I, I think for the most part, it's going to be situation. I think for the most part, what we'll do is we'll support people 
in ways that are more private, that are more focused on, hey, we're going we're gonna to do something where we build a support network or a group of people where we can help you build your Islam and haraqat and other things and spaces that aren't in the big public square, but nevertheless help you stay involved with other Muslims. And we're going to try to figure out something that we can do in the community where we're not like becoming trans affirmative, but nevertheless are trying to find ways where you can still practice as a Muslim. And we can guide you as part of that such that you can arrive at a place of repentance and being a full part of the Muslim community. And so I think, again, it's going to have to, it's going to be situationally, right? How far have they transitioned? How far along have they gone? What can we do? I think obviously in certain situations, we're just going to have to ask people, hey, look, like certain scenarios are ones that we're not going to be able to manage as a community. And so let's like not in the community space itself, right? So if you had like a female who transitioned male, right? Quote, unquote, did the hormone therapy and all the rest. And so you have this woman that's showing up with like a beard and looks like a man. And then she's pregnant, for instance, like that entire image, like that's not something we can just have walking around the Muslim community in a masjid. Like we just, we just can't handle that. Like we want the resources to, to take care of a scenario like that. And so to a person like that, we might say, look, like go home, sort of have your child. We'll stay in touch. We'll connect. We'll meet more privately with you and work with you on Islam and encourage you. We'll support you as Muslims, however we can as believers, right? Um, but we can't have you sort of actively participating in our masjid at this time, just given everything that's going on here. And then afterwards, we'll figure it out. Once the child's born, we'll, we'll figure out what we can do as to, to sort of form a community for that person that can help them. Um, and Allah knows best. I mean, again, it's there's going to be a lot of scenarios like that where we're just going to have to take a step back and figure out what we can do in a way that maintains our gender ontology, maintains our commitments, maintains our norms, maintains our values. The law knows best. Are there any final words that you'd like to say before we bring this to a close? No, 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 no words at all. Again, uh, if, if readers are interested, I'd, I'll just refer them to the two articles, inshallah. Great. Um, you know, which are quite detailed, but I thought this would be a useful session for those who just don't have the wherewithal to read through. They're quite dense. I get it. And so, you know, doing a session like this, inshallah, hopefully makes it more easily digestible for them to understand and gives them a sense of where some of the theories are, where some of the cultural conflicts exist, and obviously where the Sharia sits and what Islam says on this issue. The London's best. Jazakum al-Khairan once again. And with that, I'll, I'll part you and our listeners with the farewell greetings of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.